Today on Radical Personal Finance is live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Friday, January 6, 2023, the first live Q&A show of a brand new year. I'm excited that you're here with me. It's going to be a fun and meaningful and productive year for both of us. like to welcome uh, lots of new listeners recently. Uh, the show's really been growing, and I'm really uh, happy that you are here. So welcome to all of the new listeners, especially those of you joining us uh, with, a, with a fresh new focus on your finances uh, for the new year. Uh, I love uh, to set financial goals for the new year. I love to set lots of goals for the new year. And uh, the new year is such a convenient time to look at your finances, to understand the progress that you made in the last year, and to start with a fresh, fresh slate. Uh, I'll share uh, in a separate episode, I'll share with you some of the New Year's uh, financial goals that you can set uh, that are really meaningful and useful and also some of the New Year's practices that you can put in place. But we'll save that for a separate show. If you're new on Friday, any Friday when I can arrange the technology, I record a live Q&A show. Works just like call and talk radio. I publish a phone number and a call in time and then listeners of the show call in and we chat. I don't screen the phone calls. Right now we've got one, two, three, four people on the line. Uh, Usually we get somewhere between six and 12 callers call in and uh, we talk about anything that you want. Uh, Think of this as Open Line Friday. You can ask me questions. You can share your own thoughts. I've had people (laughs) advertise things, uh, share, you know, various kinds of questions. You can talk about anything that you like, ask questions, uh, share your opinions, share what you agree on, etc. One of the best ways to talk to me personally and a great way because it helps me. uh, I enjoy the conversations and it allows us to create useful and interesting content for the podcast. If you would like to gain access to one of these Friday Q&A shows, the way that you do that as by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance, patreon.com slash radical personal finance. If you go and become a patron of the show, then that will give you access to one of these call-in shows and you'll be able to speak with me live. With that said, we go to Caleb in Illinois. Caleb, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi there, Joshua. Um, so I recently transitioned from an office job and I got back into blue collar work. Um, and my main purpose is I want to use this to build my own business and I'm just building some skills right now. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how to start a business part-time, um, so that I can try to replace this main income that I'm learning from right now. What kind of blue collar work are you doing? Uh, right now I'm in a kind of a maintenance role over a, a park. It's actually a zoo. Um, so I get exposure to a lot of things, but uh, I'm trying to use it to get a lot of skills in construction and landscape. Describe to me the business that you are interested in starting. The businesses that I'm interested in starting would be uh, a niche section of landscaping and maybe lawn care. Um, getting into natives, um, edible landscaping, um, water features, and basically a green living style approach to uh, landscape design. Okay. And what was, how long have you been doing the maintenance work at the zoo? Uh, at the zoo, only a couple of months. 
Okay. I've got a background in construction and landscaping. Okay. Well, I guess what I would start with as far as kind of good general advice is quite simply this. The day you find your first customer, that's the day you're in business. And in, in general, with what you're describing of niche landscaping, lawn care, or, or kind of property development, these are not, this is not something that requires you to have 30 years of experience. Now, you will want to have some specialized knowledge about what local plants will work best, what it would be kind of the most, um, again, the best kinds of plants for the environment. But this, this is several weeks of study. This is, not, uh, this is not years of study. This is weeks or perhaps months of study and design. And most of your energy and focus should simply be in acquiring your first customer. In this type of business, your only limitation is the number of customers that you can find and attract. Uh, you can work a job during the week or whatever hours you're there, and then you can do this kind of job on the weekends and at night uh, or early in the morning or whatever works with your other hours. The limiting factor is simply your finding uh, c customers. And your customers really care only about uh, what you sell them as far as the vision. They're going to have input into that, and then your ability to follow through on the vision. So my overall advice would be make your transition plan as short as possible and focus heavily on finding high quality customers because the day you find your first customer, that's the day that you're in business. You don't need anything more than that. Okay. Thank you. Awesome advice. Do you, do you mind if I ask you another thing specific to the job I have now? Sure. Uh, so I started recently and being, being at the zoo, it's actually a city position. And they do offer a pension plan that vests after five years. Do you have any advice on calculating how much that would be worth um, to jump into my own business full time? Like uh, if it's worth it to stay the five years or to branch out on my own once I start getting customers? What is your current salary at the zoo? The current salary is about $42,000 a year. Yeah. So it's almost certainly that this should be maximum a six month deal for you. Like in, 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 much quicker than six months, you should be out on your own. And so there's no point in participating in the pension. There's no point in, in kind of working towards that. Now, let me explain just so you understand very clearly why I'm saying what I'm saying. You said to me, I took a job as a bridge so that I can start my own business. And then you describe the business that you are planning to start. If you said to me, I took the job and I'm planning to do this job for a long time, well, of course, participate in the pension plan. But you're taking this job to learn some skills and to give yourself uh, some income while you're starting a business. And my point is, there's never going to be a better time to start a business. And maybe you'll vest five years from now, but so what? Just because you vest it still is not going to make a meaningful difference in your, uh, in your income. So you should be able in 12 months or less, you should certainly be able to uh, replace a 40 something thousand dollar salary. And you should certainly be able to double that next year. And you should certainly be able to double it again in year three. Uh, and so this is just not that, I, I don't think this is in any way out of reach. Um, have, what kind of price range are you imagine, like describe to me a job that you might do for a potential client and how much you're going to bill that client for that kind of job. Um, so it would, it would be totally dependent. I think I would start just to start building a portfolio. It would be kind of uh, front yard installs, um, uh, lawn replacements raised bed gardens, uh, so small carpentry. So um, a lot of those jobs on the 
material side, it would probably be between one to $5,000 in cost. And then it depends on, you know, the size for, for my labor. And if I end up getting anyone else onto the business, um, and then a 20% markup seems to be about what I'm looking at there. Um, so it's just, it's just filling up with enough, uh, market demand. I haven't done enough research on that area, specifically being in the area that I am. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many compared to big cities, how, how necessary all the, the, uh, the green living style landscape design is. Okay. So I don't want to get too deep into the specifics here, but I think you're dramatically underestimating the kinds of jobs that you could do um, fairly quickly. I mean, I can't imagine somebody hiring you for a thousand dollar job and you got to understand that the kinds of people who are going to hire you for your services are not, are the kinds of people who don't want to do their own work. Any kind of Joe homeowner that wants to put in some raised beds and and spend a thousand dollars, he's very likely to go do it himself. Uh, or hire a couple of buddies to help him or, or just, you know, 12 pack of beer and, and do it on the weekends. A thousand dollar expenditure on a front yard is nothing. And so I think you're, you're, you're dramatically underestimating the size of the jobs that you should be looking for. I'm guessing. And again, to be clear, I have no personal experience in this kind of business. This is just a generalized perspective from a little bit of life experience and thinking about some of this stuff, but your minimum job that you would bid should be $5,000. And, and, and you should very much not be working from a, okay, what the percentage of markup basis you should go in and do your best to present Plan, you know, to present plans, present ideas, uh, present clear proposals, and then bid them on a co- on a job cost basis. Now, clearly, you're not yet a landscape designer who's going to uh, have the fullness of that. But I think that you're, you're basically your minimum job size. What I'm saying should be five thousand dollars. I don't think building a business on thousand dollar jobs, uh, unless you somehow have a lot of them and you have a clear uh, markup for that is in any way sustainable. So think about what is a $5,000 job look like? What does a $5,000 job entail? What's the material cost, et cetera? And then focus on getting yourself into a situation where you can do one of those every weekend. Um, because if, if you if you're if you're building out a five thousand dollar job, let's say that you you have say two thousand dollars of profit in that, then if you could do those one every other weekend or or two weekends per job, then pretty quickly you can replace your your income. But you need to get to the point where you understand what it's like to sell those jobs, and then you need to deliver deliver some so that you can build that portfolio. Uh, you might I'm generally pretty skeptical of the idea of doing work to build a portfolio that doesn't pay well. Um, You might have to sell a little harder. You might lose a few clients while you're getting to that first job, but I don't see why you shouldn't be paid well for your first job, or at least paid adequately, maybe not paid handsomely, but paid adequately for the first job. And then boom, take lots of pictures and, and, and get going. Um, But I, I, it sounds to me like you're a little short in terms of the kinds of things that you're imagining doing. Otherwise, it, maybe I'm wrong. And so you need to go and talk to people in that business, develop some relationships with people. Uh, at the very least, I would hire myself on as a day laborer, uh, at least on the weekend around my other job for someone else. Uh, guys who do what you do are always looking for somebody who's willing to do 
willing to do side work for them. Uh, working for them on the weekend might work really beautifully for their needs because maybe they have crews that work during the week, but they could use a little bit more weekend help. Uh, so building some contacts and getting around it. But I think you're I think your your numbers are too small. Um, think about what a five thousand dollar job would look like. How would you would deliver on that? How would you build you know fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars of profit into a five thousand dollar job, and then develop a few of those? And if you're going to do portfolio work, go to your mom's house and do it for her, uh, and then you know really make sure you max or do it in your your own yard, maximize your pictures. Uh, but you don't need to give your services away to paying customers. That's the point. The, the whole point of having a day job that provides you with income is it allows you to just to be patient and go for actual good and real customers. So on the weekend, you're not doing work for free. Either you're going out looking for customers and showing them the portfolio that you've created in your yard, in your mom's yard, et cetera, or you're at the library studying the books or you're, or you're volunteering and or working for a landscape designer, a, someone else you're becoming, you're going to the, the local every you're giving tours at a local botanical garden for local native species. Um, you're you're setting up a wildscaping tour of town so that you really know your stuff and you can and, and you can make those contacts in the uh, in kind of the native species world. But I guess my point is, don't you're, you're not going to make a living on thousand dollar jobs. Um, I mean, so raise your sights and then build your skills in accordance with it. Fair enough. That sounds good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that my problem is I'm approaching it from like a handyman style, you know, ones and two odd end jobs. And I should be really looking at uh, more of a contracting company style of getting large jobs to get the profits in. And I'm hoping I learn a lot. Uh, there's a summit coming up where they're having a big gathering um, for a lot of uh, already in progress businesses. So hopefully I can learn Wonderful. a lot from that in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I guess you, the, the key thing is just nar narrow down on who your customer is. And your customer is not you, right? The guy who hires a handyman is not the guy. The guy who does work on his house on the weekends doesn't hire a handyman. The guy who hires a handyman is who has more money than time and wants a good quality result and is willing to pay for it. So you may not have a lot of experience personally being the kind of guy who hires the handyman. But recognize that when people hire a handyman or when people hire someone, what they want is quality work and they want a fair price, but they're not looking for a cheap price. Right. And this has been a transition that I've made in my own life. I grew up, um, I, my, my parents didn't, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I was normal middle class, but we didn't have a lot of money. And my dad did a lot of his own work and I grew up working with him on stuff. And so I was very much in the DIY mentality. And as I got older and as I started to have more money, I realized I don't want to DIY this stuff anymore. I don't enjoy it. I don't want to do it. I don't like it. And so I want to hire it done. And so I, over the years, have hired more people to do stuff. Now, and I do have a budget. So there are times in which I don't do things because I just don't feel like that's worth it. But when it's worth it for me to hire somebody, I'm not looking for the cheapest price. I'm looking for the guy who's the most reliable. I'm looking for the guy who's going to follow through and do what he says he's going to do. I'm looking for the guy that can provide the insight and the expertise that I don't have. I'm looking for a guy that's going to make sure the job site is totally clean at the end of the day. I'm looking for a guy who's going to be trustworthy. Those are skills that you already have, uh, or I hope you have, or if not, you know, fix them, right? Show up on time, do what you say you're going to do and clean up before you leave. In the United States, you can 
you can make multiple six figures a year if you just show up on time, do what you agree to do, and clean up before you leave at the end of the day. Um, Because the other skills are relatively quickly earned. So don't think that you're selling to the people who, you know, again, are going to do a thousand dollar job. You're not. You're selling to um, people who are willing to spend more money. And what they're looking for is good advice and good service. We go to Ben in Tennessee. Ben, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, uh, good afternoon. Um, First time calling. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I I guess I have a question. it maybe it's a prioritization uh, question. So I've got a, a few things on on my plate that I know you've discussed uh, in the past. So um, my wife and I are both working. She works part time, um, and we it total make about two hundred fifty thousand a year. Um, and we have uh, we have two two little girls. One of them is three, coming up on school age, and we're thinking about homeschooling. Um, we also have uh, recently purchased a, a vacation property um, that we really like, uh, but now we're wondering if it maybe it's too much of an anchor financially. Um, to uh, you know, uh, what I'm considering doing is somehow, you know, reducing our income uh, to to you know try to make homeschooling uh, um, more doable, at, you know, for us from a time standpoint, whether that me, whether that means me going down to part-time and her continuing part-time or, uh, she really enjoys her part-time work. So I would like for her to be able to continue doing that. Um, I guess my question is, you know, <laughs> I, I can tell you, you know, what I'm thinking is that, you know, p- potentially we just exit the vacation property and, you know, allow ourselves a little bit more room to reduce income. Um, but, uh, you know, the other option would be, of course, we you know maybe skip homeschooling and continue to both work the current amount that we're working. Um, I, uh, sort of general, I guess. I, I just don't know if there's maybe um, maybe some ways you would you would advise me to think about this. Sure. Um, you know, thinking about sort of these multiple priorities. Let me clarify: your eldest is three, and you also have a younger child. That's correct, and we we hope to have another one. Um, you know, may, maybe by the end of the end of 23 or early 24. And of the $250,000 household income, how much of that do you generate and how much of that does your wife generate? Yeah. So she's doing about 80 and I'm doing the other 170. Okay. If your wife wants to um, stop working or if she wants mm-hmm. to make income generation a more modest priority. What I mean is mm-hmm. you said, okay, she really likes her work. She wants to stay involved in it. Um, you can work around that, but the key is just to separate mm-hmm. yourself from it financially, that you're not dependent on it. But you should right. certainly be able to comfortably provide that. The hardest situations are when you have a household income of, of 250 and you earn 125 or she earns 125. When right. there's a, then, then it's like, well, what do we do? We, you know, where do we go? How do we make the money work? We're going to lose half our income. In your situation, because you earn two-thirds and she earns a third, then you can, you can handle that and you can deal, deal with that. So here are a couple of framework questions. Number one, your child is three. None of this is particularly pressing. You're, mm. you're in greater need of child care than you are of quote-unquote homeschooling. Um, homeschooling in the early years 
is much more about character development. It's much more about personality shaping. It's much more about relationship development than it is about anything academic. And um, academics, you don't need to think about at all about academics for three or four years. Uh, now, this is actually one of the reasons why it's so important that you make whatever decisions you're going to make now. I'm convinced that the most important years are the first few years for in terms of shaping a child's personality, shaping a child's character, et cetera. Uh, and that's, one, that's why it's so hard to hire those things out or institutionalize those things. As huge of an advocate as I personally am for homeschooling, there's no denying the fact that you can hire excellent teachers to teach your child academic subjects. There are many very high-quality schools, private schools, uh, Christian schools, government schools. There are lots of wonderful schools out there with dedicated teachers who do a great job at teaching academics. The problem is, how do you hire somebody to shape your child's character? How do you hire someone to teach your child virtue? How do you hire someone to instill these things into your child? You can't do it. The only person that can do it is a mom. That's it. A mom who has the patience to be with a two-year-old, a three-year-old, has the patience to work with, to, to encourage kindness, to encourage stick to to build relationship connection. And so when you institutionalize your three-year-old, you're taking the most valuable years of life and you're putting those years of life into the hands of a minimum wage uh, or close to minimum wage, you know, clerk kind of kind of thing and that that mm -hmm. person that that daycare worker even if if he or she is beautifully dedicated is never going to have the patience that you and your wife are going to have with your own child and so it's not a homeschooling question it's a like child raising question that's the, that's the most important thing. And you're already there. You're not there from a schooling perspective. You're there now from a child-raising perspective. Now, one of the great th things to look at is if both you and your wife have significant demands in your time, you have a few basic strategies. Strategy number one is one of you can become a full-time parent or close to a full-time parent. Um, in some situations, that can be the father. In your situation, it would obviously be your wife. Um, if she can minimize her work to just enough for her to stay current and connected to her, her interests and her love of, of whatever she does, et cetera, and if you hope to have more children, then it is obviously a solution for her to be a stay-at-home mom. And you just do whatever is necessary to make the finances work. Notice you don't necessarily have to trim expenses. You can increase income. And sometimes sure. what's necessary is just for you to decide to do it. Uh, and so uh, not everyone can increase income, but in your situation, you can figure out a way to live on $170,000 very comfortably and or you can increase your income. You can increase your income that's associated with your employment or your business. You can also increase your income that's associated with the the, the thing, right? The vacation home. And so mm -hmm. that obviously you've considered things like short-term rentals or even longer-term rentals. But if your wife uh, if your wife gives up her income from her job or, or let's say half of it, and she's making thirty or forty thousand dollars doing it part time, and she's also making twenty thousand dollars a year from your vacation home, well, now the 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 bite is not so big, especially when you factor in the the costs of the saved costs of childcare, et cetera. So 
the, what choice number one is you can have one parent become a stay-at-home parent. That's a great choice. And I think in many cases, it's an ideal choice. Unless a mom or a dad is just not suited to, to being with you know, with children all the time for some reason, a handicap or a physical ability or, or emotional instability or something like that, I think in many cases that's the best solution. You also look and say, is there another family member? So this is where grandparents can be hugely helpful. Uh, it, and for many people, they say, hey, we still have, um, we still have a uh, an income, or we need to work, but but is there another family member who doesn't have an income or who could provide some form of childcare? Uh, so grandparent, sister, you know, close family friend, uh, doing something with another couple that we like from church or something like that. Then you also look and say, is there a way that we can adjust schedules? So some parents can handle this very well because he works four days a week and she works three days a week. We don't have a lot of days off together, but at least one of us was with the children all the time. And then you can go to institutions, but you can try to choose your institutions really strategically. So you try to choose an institution that provides you with more of what you're looking for. And in some cases, maybe that's we found a wonderful daycare, you know, four hours a day, and that's just enough to where then um, you know, one of us can pick our daughter up and be with her from noon to eight. The the any the point is that I think at the ideal perspective, you you probably have you know two full time parents, and then at the least ideal perspective, you get your child up at at sunup, you rush you know rush him out of the house and rush him to a daycare, and you pick him up right before he goes to bed. And so finding an, a practical solution between those is is, is the key. Now. What's going to make the difference for you is just simply the level of conviction that you have about it. It's not going to be a financial question. Um, you could figure out the finances if you had the level of conviction. So I have a high level of conviction, which is why I speak clearly and try to convey that to you, while, of course, being respectful of, of each person's own individual choices. But because I have a high level of conviction, I know that I would do whatever it takes to make this happen. And that drives my decisions. It's not a matter of, of whether or not to take this course of action. It's a matter of how does it make the most sense for our family to take this course of action. If you have that level of conviction, then you will be able to to chart out the path to get there. Uh, and if that means sell the vacation home, done. You know, You can always buy another vacation home five years from now. No big deal. If you're lacking that conviction, though, then recognize that that is what you're missing. It's not a pathway through the finances. It's the conviction. And so you just want to think about it, talk about it, and, and between you and your wife, make, make whatever decisions and consider what your level of conviction is. And if your conviction is low because you have a great, you know, just a, a daycare at the house across the street by this wonderful family that has beautiful children, wonderful, done. If your conviction is high because you, you have to just take your child and enroll him in a, in a, in a, in a, in a subpar environment, well, then the answer is obvious. So what I'm focusing on is don't mistake financial constraints with need for conviction. If you have the conviction, then the financial path will be fairly evident. You've already laid it out. It's either increase income or decrease expenses. Fix whichever one of those ones makes more sense to you. Or if you need more conviction, then spend your time thinking about that uh, and don't worry about the money until you develop the conviction. Yep, that makes sense. I think you could probably sense that the conviction is low. Right. We are, we are, we're just sort of starting to talk, talk through this. Like I said, she's only three, right? So right. got a couple of years before academic start. So we're just trying to make sure, um, you know, that we're being intentional about, 
materials that we're looking at and just, you know, making sure that we're putting everything on the table right. so we can right. um, make the right call when it comes time. Um, I guess one quick question, I, I'm not going to ask you for uh, homeschooling resources. Do you, do you have any, uh, have you ever read anything uh, that you would recommend about someone who has an anti homeschooling view? Um, we, we want to make sure that we read both sides of this thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a very uh, perceptive question and, and excellent. Um, so from the anti-homeschooling view, there are a couple of major schools of thought. <laughs> no pun intended. Usually yeah. I intend my puns, but uh, I should acknowledge when, I don't, when they're not intended. Uh, the, first, uh, the first school of thought has to do, or the first major objection. So actually, let me, let me start in reverse order. The first major objection is generally practical, right? It's, it's, the, it's the situation that you're yeah. facing right now. Um, our modern world is set up for mom and dad to have jobs and make an income and to be professionals and then to go hire professionals to teach their children. That's the, that's the, 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 the norm. And I don't know any homeschooling families that have not sacrificed tremendously to do that. That's why I say it, it does come down to a level of conviction. Virtually all of the homeschooling families that I know, and I'm, I'm racking my brain, I'm sure there's a couple of exceptions, which I'm trying to say virtually, right? But most homeschooling families that I know could make a whole lot more money, could live in a nicer house, could have lots more spendable money if they weren't committed to homeschooling. And the homeschooling costs a lot. It costs a lot in terms of foregone income for the homeschooling parent. It costs a lot in terms of family lifestyle. It, uh, it costs a lot, in, in especially most of the time, it's a homeschooling mom. It costs her a lot in terms of her career potential, et cetera. And so you have to have a, a, a conviction where it's worth that cost. I think it is homeschooling families that do it generally come to the conviction that it is. If they don't, then if they, if they don't come to that conviction, then they just switch back and they move on with their lives. But those who you see do it have come to the conclusion that, that it's there, but it's not cost-free. We're all pretty aware of the costs, but we do it because we want the benefits. Now, um, so the first reason is practical, right? If, if, if I'm coaching, um, you know, a single mom who has limited career potential and she's making, I actually knew a, a, a friend of mine, a lady in our church growing up was like this. She was a single mother. She had four daughters and she had very limited career potential. I would not encourage her to uh, homeschool. Uh, no one did encourage her to homeschool. And, and today, if I were doing it, I would not encourage her to homeschool. What she did in her situation was she had a and she was a single mother with a very low income her uh her ex-husband was very unreliable with regard to child support etc and she struggled so what she did was she rented a little house that was close to a local christian school she worked at that christian school driving a bus as well as working in the lunchroom and that allowed her to have significantly discounted tuition for all of her daughters to enroll them in the school, and that allowed them to make it through. And so she was able to give her children the highest quality education that she could, um, but without going and doing homeschooling. There's no way that I can see where she would ever be able to homeschool. But she didn't just settle for enrolling her children in the government school. She worked really hard to give them the education that she wanted for them. And I've known quite a lot of single mothers who have done similar 
things. They work night and day to try to enroll their children in a high-quality private school of some kind that's going to give their children more educational advantages than they can get in the government school system. The other flip side is I've also known um, many parents who enrolled their children in the government school system and just simply supplemented it significantly so that their children had a higher quality education. That supplementation can come to family environment and background. Um, Asian uh, Asian cultures are famous for this, right? They'll they'll come to the, many Asians around the United around the world have immigrated to the United States. They enroll their children into government schools, but they have such a culture of studiousness and academic performance, and the parents hold very high standards for their children. So the children um, succeed in school, and they get moved on to the gifted track. And once they're on the gifted track in a government school, then they can write their ticket, and so they can achieve a very high level of academic uh, education. And a lot of times when you can move your child out of the, the, the median group into the gifted group, then you can improve the social environment where you get into better families, better students, fewer problems, less bullying, less harassment, et cetera, and you can get better problems. And so um, the, first, the first reason people don't homeschool, the biggest reason is simply the practicality of needing to have a full-time teacher. Now, I don't know anybody who doesn't homeschool because they believe that the government is going to do a better job. Um, if you look at the people who are the loudest advocates of government schooling and the loudest opponents of homeschooling, very frequently they themselves do not participate in the industrial government school system. So, you know, President Obama and First Lady um, Obama did not enroll their children into the local government school, uh, even though they would be the first to step up and say, well, we should, you know, we should limit homeschooling. We should maximize government schools. Most politicians uh, enroll their children into the elite private schools that are available to them. But this is a significant area of opposition from in the political sphere. What I'm trying to point out is it's not in the practical sphere, but it is in the political sphere. In the political sphere, a major objection to homeschooling is involves uh, the lack of ability by government officials to coordinate uh, curricula, to 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 coordinate a, a one consistent curricula that that all people are uh, curriculum excuse me that are passed that all people are passed in, passed through and the ability to use the schools to shape the culture shape the civic culture shape the perspectives and opinions of the people and so this is usually the hot political debate uh, and people say well you know people parents shouldn't have the right to pull their children out of schools if you look at the the countries in the world where homeschooling is strictly illegal right germany sweden etc the reason has largely to do with this idea of government indoctrination. Uh, and so like the Germany's anti-homeschooling laws are an artifact of the Nazi regime uh, under Adolf Hitler. So Adolf Hitler instituted uh, mandatory schooling and forbade uh, in privatized schooling as a way of shaping the minds and the ideology of the people. So after World War II, Germany threw off virtually all of the Nazi-era uh, kind of social programs, et cetera, except this one. And so it's a remaining artifact from that mind control era that the government has chosen to continue to, to pass forward. And so that is, the, uh, that is a big objection that many people have is that how are we going to survive if everyone, if parents have the right to educate their children the way that they should be? Uh, and so 
the point is this is an objection, but it's not a practical objection. It's a philosophical objection. The next objection that you will hear has a lot to do with the professionalization of teaching. And so um, teachers say, uh, you know, listen, I was a trained professional teacher. I went to a teaching college. I have a four-year degree, undergraduate degree in elementary education. I can do a much better job teaching your child than some, you know, uneducated mother. How can you, how, you know, how is that possible? And so it is important to recognize this. And I think that, unfortunately, there's a severe lack of confidence on behalf of many homeschooling mothers, that they that homeschooling mothers have this, like, major inferiority complex where they go through life wondering, is what I'm doing okay? Like, am I doing good enough? Should I do better? Uh, and they think that somehow the professionalization of teaching is necessary. I, myself, think that this is largely nonsense from a couple of perspectives. Number one, it's nonsense because generally the stuff that we're talking about teaching is pretty basic stuff. If you can read, and if you have a book that gives you an outline of how to teach someone to read, then you can probably teach someone to read. You don't need to go to college for four years to teach someone to read. If professional help is needed, so for example, let's say that your child has a speech uh, impediment, or let's say that your child has a learning disability, dyslexia, or some other various learning disabilities, then that's where I think professional training is very, very helpful. But even in that situation, I would still bet on the mother rather than the professional every single time. Because the mother, in schooling her child with disabilities, is the one who has the motivation to seek out the world's best therapies. The mother is the one who has the motivation and the time to make sure that those therapies are accomplished. And she's going to be able to do a lot more than a teacher who has to work with 10 children with who are in need of therapies. And so I think you definitely want to seek out the advice of experts if you have a unique uh, disab- you know, child with a disability, et cetera. But that expert is your consultant and you're doing the work at home, just like with physical therapy, right? If your child has a, some other physical disability, well, your physical therapist is going to do um, his professional work, but you're going to supplement it with all of the work that you're going to do at home. So I don't think that there's the professionalization of teaching is, is something that is necessary. And it's certainly not necessary in the elementary school, middle school, and high school. If and when professionalization of teaching is necessary, you can and should access those professionals. So let's say your child wants to learn violin. Well, violin seems to me like one of those things that is generally not acquired well through reading books. You don't read books about violin to learn to play the violin. And you're going to have a hard time teaching a child to play the violin if you yourself don't play the violin. And so what you're going to do is you're going to go and find a violin teacher. And this is the same thing that homeschooling parents do, is they bring in professionals when those professionals are warranted. Uh, You hire a violin teacher. You hire a calculus tutor. You hire a chemistry tutor or something. When there's a subject where you need a specific professional input, then you go and you hire that professional input. But most subjects are not this way. High school chemistry does not need an expert to teach it. All you need is a chemistry book, a few chemistry books, uh, and in some cases, a little bit of apparatus. But even the apparatus is not necessary, right? You're not actually doing experiments generally in high school. You're just following directions and doing chemical recipes that are supposed to tell you something about how how the process works. So, uh, so most knowledge that can and should be acquired is acquired much more simply 
than than people think. And this is where I go back to kind of teaching modality. Um, when you have a child who is older, the most important tool to use for the curriculum that a child is following is simply accessing and absorbing knowledge from high quality books. Because there you get a professional teacher, an author, who is an expert at a subject, who has created a book that's going to open the eyes of the student and teach the student what he needs to know and is going to do it in a vastly superior way than a classroom teacher can do. And this is what drove me crazy myself throughout high school. Uh, not everybody learns well through books. Maybe that's the case. I should give my caveats, right? Maybe some people like to sit in class and listen to lectures. But it drove me crazy that my high school experience was we would have a textbook, right? McGraw-Hill went out and hired five PhD chemistry people or five PhD biology people to write a biology textbook. And they sat down and they wrote a book with 400 pages in it and 30 chapters, teaching systematically, carefully, and clearly everything that was needed in the textbook. And they they laid it out and they they not only did they put in uh, the useful text, but they put in diagrams, pictures, charts. Um, they, they highlight the key points. They put in titles and, and bullet points. At the end of every um, section, they put comprehension questions and review questions. And then they give you all the answers to those things so you can go through them. And so then you walk into ninth grade you know, marine biology, you're issued this textbook, and then you proceed to listen to a teacher who has a few years of teaching teaching experience, go through and deliver her lectures of what she thinks you need to know to pass her test on marine biology. And you wind up reading cumulatively 75 to 100 pages of this 400-page textbook. It wasn't until I was doing my graduate work after my undergrad degree that I actually read a textbook. Prior to that time, I hated textbooks because I just thought they were boring, etc. But when I did my graduate degree, for the first time, all of my study was all self-directed. The way it worked was they sent me a textbook, I read the textbook, and then I had an exam. And so I started reading textbooks, and I came to learn how wonderful textbooks actually are. And I thought back to my high school and college experience, and I thought, why did I sit for hours and hours listening to somebody for give subpar presentations when I could have simply read the textbook? And um, you know, that's a personal thing. Again, maybe some people like those those kinds of presentations. I'm a, I think there's a place for lectures, but there's not a need for lectures for high school level subjects. There's a need for lectures when you're dealing with very kind of new cutting edge science or graduate level stuff or a seminar where the lecturer is going to be able to enhance what you've already read in the textbook or, or something like that. We're not, when, when we deal with, with you know, K through 12 stuff, nothing here is cutting edge. You don't need a professional teacher. What you need is a coach and a guide. You need um, a teacher to help with some of the basics of uh, of reading, of learning to read, uh, the basics of learning mathematics, the first kind of few lessons. And then you need somebody who's capable of seeking out the best books and guiding the child into reading those best books, et cetera. What, let me go more, go give one more example. What about something like writing? Do you need somebody who is, um, who, who's going to grade and, and address, you know, and improve somebody's writing? What if you have, uh, you know, what if you have a, your, your, a mother who is illiterate and who is teaching her children to write? First, we have. Do you do you need a professional teacher then? 
My answer is still no, probably not. It would be helpful probably in some cases, but not. The best example here would go to Dr. Ben Carlson, the famed neurosurgeon who he and his brother um, only found out after they were extremely accomplished and very well educated that their mother was completely illiterate. But she required them to spend their time reading books. And then they, of course, went through government schools and they had, had help from the teachers and whatnot who were there. And they became very, very skilled. But what was the, the thing that their mother did for them? She required them to read a lot. And the key to being something like a good writer is not to have a teacher go through your writing with a red pen and mark everything. The key to being a good writer is to spend lots of time doing good reading and then to have something that you care about enough to write about. So I believe that writing is important, but, uh, but I don't think that the grading of writing is particularly important. There are perhaps a few things that can help, right? Pointing out a misspelling or something, but most of that is not necessary. What is necessary is to create an, an environment where a student spends time reading quality literature and then has an opportunity to write about things that he cares about rather than to have a professional teacher. So I went into that one because I think this is the big, probably the biggest reason people don't homeschool other than practicality. The practical features are a big deal. And then also, well, I'm not a professional, right? I need a professional. And my answer is no, you don't. You need a loving coach. You need someone who's knowledgeable. You do need to know what the best books are. But the great thing, especially in the English homeschooling world, is you could pretty much pick any curriculum or any book list and go through it, and you're going to be in a really great um, scenario. Finally, um, I think the biggest downside of homeschooling has to do with the social aspect. Let me describe, though, specifically what I mean by the social aspect. I don't know any homeschoolers who are hermits. The socialization objection is the most commonly heard objection to homeschooling. People say, well, how will my children learn social skills? That, to me, that objection is presented by people who have never spent any time thinking about it. And let me answer that objection, and I'll give you what I think is the real objection. The first uh, objection is, is, well, if children are at home all the time, they're not going to learn how to socialize with other people their age. My first answer to this is there is positive socialization and there is negative socialization. There are many children in the world with whom I do not want my children to interact in any way whatsoever because I do not want my children to be affected by those children. And so an uncontrolled social environment that takes all children, for example, in one you know, 10-block area and sticks them into a room in an age-banded uh, environment where it's all the 12 year olds within this 10 block area and then creates an adult to to child ratio that is 20 to 1 or 30 to 1 that is a recipe for disaster it's one of the most artificial destructive social environments you can possibly imagine it takes away the normal social structure of socialization, where you have adults that you look up to, where you have um, uh, peers that you enjoy being with and that you work with, and that you have younger people that you coach and that you lead, and it just strips all that out and sticks people in an age-banded classroom. And then 
without the ability to discriminate against well-behaved students and poorly behaved students, against students with good character, good virtue, good morals, and students with poor character and no virtue and low morals, it creates an environment for destruction. And you, the, 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 the leaders never win. You always go down to the least common denominator. You can have 15 children who show up and who want to, uh, and, and who want to learn every day. And you have five children that show up who just want to goof off and play games. The 15, ch- the, the 15 children are not going to bring the five children up. The five children are going to ruin the experience for the other 15. And the only way to, to deal with that is either to have a system of very high discipline where you can discipline and force the behavior of the five children to change or to remove the five children from the classroom. That's it. Because your entire classroom environment will be destroyed by those who are there in a destructive capacity. And so this is the basic problem with government schools. Government schools cannot discriminate against students. They can only have all of the students that are in that area. Now, there is, of course, the positive side to that, that we all appreciate, the anti-discrimination fights that have gone through. Uh, But today, what that means is you have to accept everybody. And the government school teachers have very few tools of discipline especially at the more modest levels. And so what this means is when you enroll your child into a government school, you're putting them into one of the most dangerous environments where the thugs and the bullies and the predators on all sides are not controlled by the discipline of the system. And so at the very least, you can move into a private school environment where they can have stronger tools of discipline and they can expel more freely troublemakers. And this is one of the biggest reasons why um, most wealthy people don't frequent government schools. You cannot thrive in a system where you have even a small percentage of undealt with troublemakers because they will destroy the atmosphere for the entire group. So the socialization that happens in schools is often negative socialization. It's it's not positive socialization. And here I have some interesting insight um, because of my own experience. I was homeschooled with the exception of third grade when I went to a government school. I was homeschooled through seventh grade. In seventh grade, I went to a traditional local private Christian school. And in that context, for the first time in my life, I understood what... Um, class systems were. I understood what bullying was. I understood what all those things were. Prior to seventh grade, I had always been in a completely loving environment, kind environment. Everyone had always treated me well. I had never had any kind of question about self-esteem. I was involved in a family where I was loved and I was appreciated and I was cared for. And then I went into a school where all of a sudden, even though it was a better environment than I would have faced in a government school because of the ability of the school to restrict the specific students that are enrolled in it, uh, i.e. discrimination, um, I was in a better environment, but, but it still had kind of all of those things. And I vividly remember, number one, how quickly I started to be aware of where, how I fit into the pecking order. But what was worse is I look back with shame and I can think of a couple instances where I myself partook in starting to bully other students. Now, thankfully, I never was physically aggressive. I never punched anybody. I never threw anybody in a locker, etc. My bullying was limited in scope to saying unkind things or basically taunting and teasing. But I was taught by the environment that it was, there were some kids that you looked up to and there were some kids that you taunted, that you teased. 
And it, I, you know, it was years later, several years after high school, I went to a high school reunion and I went and I sought out two of the, the, the boys that I remembered and I apologized to them because it took me years to realize how I had, um, how I had mistreated them. And again, I didn't ever physically assault anybody. I just teased people, but still I, I was ashamed of it. And so I was taught even in a, in the most quote unquote, um, positive environment, uh, you know, a private, selective Christian school, I was taught those social dynamics, those negative social dynamics by my classmates, things that I never would have done previously. I, I never would have been unkind to somebody. I never would have chosen to pick on somebody because the group was. But once I got in that environment, within a year, I realized that this was the thing that was to be done. So, Negative socialization is a big problem of the school environment, and it's a problem especially in government schools, but it's still a problem in private schools. The way I talk about this is quite simply that most people are not prepared until they're in their 20s are probably not prepared to face the hell that is middle school. I don't understand why we do this to our children. Elementary school for most people is a pretty happy-go-lucky environment, and and people like them, and, and everyone's kind, and they go through elementary school, they get to middle school. And then it just turns into a hell for a lot of people. And they start to build up calluses and whatnot. And many people go to high school and it's a little bit better. And I remember this feeling when I got to college and I looked at all of the weird looking theater kids hanging out together. And I thought to myself one day, they're having fun. And I had always kind of had to hide a little bit that I enjoyed theater and I enjoyed singing. I was never a theater kid, but I remember when I got to college and I saw the theater kids like they're having fun. They have friends who think like them. And then I got out of college. And I realized that once you're an adult, you can associate with whomever you want to associate with. You can associate with people who are kind to you, people who make you feel good. And I realized that this forced association of the school system is so destructive. You know, when I reached 25 years old, I felt like, you know what, I could probably go back to high school now and deal with it. But the average high schooler can't deal with it. And my evidence for that is look at everything from at the hardcore rate, the suicide rate in the United States, all the way up to just the, the, the weird social vices that people have. So it's a huge problem. Now, let me continue to the other aspects of socialization. I think that once we step away from the negative socialization of of schooling, which is primarily caused by the structure, the artificial structure of forced association of students in age-banded uh, environments, the socialization that does happen generally doesn't happen very well. So you say, well, I'm going to go to school to see my friends, but I'm going to see my friends for the four minutes between uh, – between classes, and then we're going to whisper in the back of the room, or I'm going to go to school and enjoy my lunch break with my friends and enjoy the 25 minutes that we have to eat lunch and visit. Well, that stuff's really great, but it's not quality socialization. It's not a time where you actually have significant time to interact with your friends. And so one of my huge objections to, to schooling is that it's a giant, it's a colossal waste of time. If you look at the amount of of time that the average teacher can spend teaching in a classroom environment. I think that let's say you have a 50 minute period. Of course, some schools have different scheduling, block scheduling, et cetera. But let's say you have a 50 minute period. I think the maximum that a teacher could expect to teach from a 50 minute period is probably 25 minutes, right? 20 to 30 minutes. And so if you look at the actual percentage of time used by the, the, 
the uh, you know the, the fifteen to eighteen thousand hours that we enroll a child in school, the actual learning time of that fifteen to eighteen thousand hours is probably something on the range of you know three to five thousand hours total. And yet we suck up all of this time and we, we have subpar learning opportunities and we have subpar socialization opportunities because there's not t- free association. There's not actually a lot of time spent together. From the learning opportunities, if you go to homeschooling or, or, or more interest-directed individualized learning, you can have a significantly higher level of, of learning happen in a dramatically lower less amount of time. So let's go back to that ninth grade marine biology classroom. Teacher is standing up in front of the room. She's got a 50-minute period, and she's got probably going to have 25 minutes of teaching. Well, she's going to teach her 25 minutes using verbal expression. I'm using verbal expression right now. I'm talking fast. I think fast, and I talk fast, pretty fast. And some of you are listening to me at 2x speed. In fact, many of you are. In In a classroom, you can't listen at a 2x speed. The maximum verbal rate of delivery for a prepared presentation is probably about 8,000 words per hour. I've, I measure, um, I measure uh, because of my language interests, I've measured the average audiobooks that I listen to. And so a professional audiobook narrator reading an audiobook from a prepared book reads usually at a rate of about 8,000 words per hour. So if a teacher has 25 minutes, she's probably going to be able to deliver about three to 4,000 words of instructional content in that period of time, of actual 25 minutes of teaching. That's assuming that every sentence is carefully chosen, that every piece of knowledge that she wants to impart in the presentation is is prepared, it's outlined in advance, et cetera. And so she stands up in front of the room and she can she conveys three to five thousand words of information in a 50-minute class period. But when you read and you use books as the primary method of acquiring that information, just give me a good quality marine biology textbook and let me read it. You can, a good, a normal skilled reader probably reads at the rate of 15 to 20,000 words per hour. I read at about 25 to 30,000 words per hour in English. My, I watch my, my students are reading, my, my children, my eldest is reading at a rate of, of something like 15,000 words per hour, I would say. And so what the teacher might take um, all week to accomplish at that three to 5,000 words per hour times uh, five hours turns out to be basically one hour of reading for a student who's acquiring information. And it's the same information, but actually a lot better. Remember, the textbook is prepared by somebody who took dozens of hours to plan it, to prepare it. They prepared the best, best visuals, the best illustrations, they, they edited the text multiple times to make it really, really pithy. So I think it's actually more extreme than that. But basically, it's a ratio of one hour of reading versus five hours of classroom instruction from an actual education perspective. So what happens in homeschool is you swap out the five hours of class sitting and you substitute one hour of reading, which leaves four hours available for other stuff. And so what you can do is you can say, let's do two hours of reading instead of one hour of reading. So we double the academic accomplishment of the of learning, the, double the amount of information consumed, double the amount of learning. And then we still have an, an two hours. We have an hour or two for socialization and an hour or two for, say, a part-time job or for, say, going and swimming at the reef and actually doing marine biology up close because we can do a field trip every week. So in our homeschool, 
um, we do homeschool. We do school four days a week, and then we always have one or two, one to three days a week that's available for other stuff. And then that actual learning time is constrained to something like you know, depending on the age, four to five hours. And yet we can accomplish at if, if not twice, at least probably three times as much as as a teacher can accomplish in in a in kind of a normal structured environment. So that opens up so many opportunities for socialization that are better and more positive. So now the socialization that the children can do is lots and lots of time at, of playing together, the afternoons together or working on projects or other events where you don't have that artificial forced socialization that happens in school classrooms but you have more free association. And so now if somebody is not treating you kindly, well, we're not going to play with that child anymore, or we're just going to walk away or whatever the appropriate response is. And you get a much more uh, reasonable approach. Then the socialization that can happen can also happen across age barriers. So you get older children teaching younger children, younger children looking up to older children, adults being involved, uh, all of that kind of inter-age stuff that's really, really important and really, really healthy. So socialization is is in many cases the biggest objection that people have. Um, and they say, well, my homeschool student is going to be weird. There are lots of weird homeschool students, just like there are lots of weird students in government schools. The weirdness that you have is largely going to be driven by your parents or your own personal unique peculiarities and personalities. But my stance on weirdness is your weirdness is not going to get better if you get enrolled into a school where you're bullied for being weird. If I've got a child who is weird, I'm going to protect that child and allow his weirdness to work its way through. And then we're going to work on getting non-weird. And then um, and then when he's non-weird, we'll, we'll kind of introduce more of those social pressures. The other thing is just that weirdness is often a sign, something that you look, that you love. Many of the greatest people in our history have often been those who were considered to be weird. As adults, we call it eccentricity and we appreciate it, or we just call it genius. And yet when you put everyone into an environment where there's no adult per perception on kind of what, what can happen, you wind up creating these weird, uh, <laughs> these weird uh, things where people want to insult them. Now, socialization where, where homeschooling is subpar. The biggest thing where homeschooling is subpar has to do with ability to access a highly ranked uh, group uh, academic focus or something where you need a lot of people to do it. And so let me give real examples. Let's say that you're like hardcore into the classics and you want to do all of your schooling in ancient Greek and you're going to study the Greek philosophers hardcore. I think in some cases, especially in the high school years, you're probably better off with a really high level um, kind of classical school for that kind of work than you are in a homeschool environment. Because while you can hire tutors in a homeschool environment and you can hire virtual, you can put people in virtual classes, et cetera, um, if you, if you could get a group of, say, 10 or 15 students who were all in, you know, in a hardcore classics program and you're speaking ancient Greek in class and you're, you're doing all this through, that group dynamic of a very carefully chosen academic discipline is really, really positive. This is the kind of thing that happens in college where you have a group of people who are high-level students and they get around other high-level students and the creative juices that can grow and the positive peer pressure of a small group of, of people like that. That's really hard to to create in a high in a high school. 
Uh, there are other things. So big exp- things like theater and things like sports. Let's say that you have a child who is, is, seems very naturally gifted with uh, vocal performance or acting. Well, you're not going to be able to maximize that talent in a homeschool environment. There's just no practical way to do it. Um, even if you went to the professional level, uh, that still has its own problems because in the same way that, you know, having your 16 year old who's good at basketball, you don't put your 16 year old good at basketball in the NBA. There's something to be said for coming up through the ranks and learning with peers and, and people who are at your level and, and having time to make mistakes rather than experiencing professional pl- pressures. So if you have a child who's a talented vocal performer or a talented musician or something like that in a homeschool environment, it's very hard to really fully actualize those things, especially if they relate to something where you need, you know, a big cast like musical theater. Sports is the other example. Um, If your child is really um, skilled in football or in basketball, having a school environment is generally going to be the best place for that. There are sports where homeschooling is much better. So if you have individualized supports, sports like swimming or archery or, or something like that, then having your child in a homeschool environment allows you to engage in much more training. But in a team sports environment, you can't recreate that effectively in a, in a homeschool environment. Uh, the good thing is many of those things are accessible to homeschoolers. They're accessible at the high school level. So for example, many homeschoolers play sports at their local government school. They go and they, because the government school can't discriminate, that means the government school can't discriminate against high schoolers if if the state law allows for it, uh, excuse me, homeschoolers. And so they might do their homeschool, but then after every afternoon at 3.30, they're down on the basketball court playing basketball with a local basketball team or joining a musical theater or going to a computer class. Many parents will use college classes for this, and they enroll their teenagers into dual enrollment classes, and they use that to get an experience of the the classroom environment, but doing it in a a more upper level and and more controlled environment, and they're doing it intentionally, where it's something we're going to invest five to 10 hours a week instead of five to 10 hours a day uh, into that kind of inefficient environment. Um, Or this is just a good area where you say, my child's gifts are really well met by this particular school. So I'm going to enroll my children into this art school or into this school that has, you know, tremendous access, et cetera. So I think I've covered most of the important objections. Uh, I've also done my best to dismantle them, but to point out where they could be valid for, for most people. Um, but the practical stuff you have to solve yourself, the philosoph- philosophical stuff, I think most of those objections are empty. Uh, to me, uh, actually, let me add one more, and this actually is, I think, important. I shared a few minutes ago why I was not... Um, that I was, I was homeschooled through seventh grade. And you might be wondering why. Uh, my parents enrolled us, my, enrolled their children into a school because they had seen homeschooling families that were excessively sheltered. Because we're from kind of a, a Christian minority, um, there are many people who homeschool not for the purposes of academic excellence, but primarily for the purposes of protecting their children from undesirable, immoral influences. I think this is a powerful and appropriate reason to homeschool. But the application of this at different ages can vary. And so I think that what you do at the age of five in many cases can and should be different than what you do at the age of 15. 
And so my parents' concern was that they had known homeschooled children who were raised and were schooled and educated in a very protected environment. But then they turned 18 and they went out and faced the world and there was no point of transition. And in some cases, the children who were in that scenario were so shocked by what they encountered in the wider world and how different it was from their protected bubble that they uh, very quickly renounced the the ideology with which they were raised and they uh, embraced uh, the ideology that was in the prevailing culture around them. My parents didn't want that to happen. So they wanted us to be non-sheltered at an early enough age to at an early enough age where uh, we would be able to work through the questions and the issues in a collaborative consultative relationship with our parents as teens rather than as as you know late teens and early 20 somethings when it's m- less likely that a, a child would seek out his parents advice on a continual basis for a time, they enrolled various of my older siblings into government schools, but this was at a period in the 1990s when the material that was being discussed in government schools was making a significant change. And there was a point where my one of my sisters, who was in a kind of a highly rated magnet school, they were reviewing some of the w- books that she was going to be exposed to, and the books were quite simply pornographic. And my parents said, no, this is not, we're not going to require our teenage daughter to read pornography in school. So they withdrew her from the government school and enrolled us into a local private Christian school. And that was the path that the rest of us went on. It was a major strain financially. It was the one time that my mom had a job outside of the house because my parents couldn't pay the tuition, um, except that she was able to get a job at the school, which gave her enough, gave enough of a tuition, uh, Uh, discount that they were able to afford it. Um, But all of us as students contributed a nominal amount um, from our summer jobs to be able to make it work as a family. And I would say that this is the reason not to homeschool that bothers me the most. And the reason it bothers me the most is this. My parents had seven children. One of my sisters is dead. Um, Seven children. Of the six adult children, all of the six adult children Continue to be, uh, continue to be faithful Christians. I know quite a significant number of Christian families, and to have all of the children of Christian parents continue to be Christians as adults is very unusual. Now, I think there are a couple of aspects to that. Number one, the faith of my parents and the environment that we were raised in built a tremendous level of respect from us children to our parents. And so that respect was a consistent was a consistent thing. And so I don't I wouldn't say that school was a causal factor, but it does remain to be the case it does remain the case that this was a big concern for my parents that they didn't want us to be excessively sheltered. Uh, and so they intentionally exposed us to in a in a still somewhat sheltered way, but they intentionally exposed us to these challenges of the world. And that does seem to have had a good influence, at least by that testimony. So this is the thing that actually bothers me the most as a homeschooling parent, is that because of that experience that I had, um, I often wonder, will I, um, will I do the same thing? Will I enroll my children into a school when they're older? I believe that five-year-olds should be exceedingly well-sheltered. Ten-year-olds should be pretty very much well-sheltered. Fifteen-year-olds, 
need to be significantly unsheltered um, in order to to progress healthily into adulthood. Uh, I have often gotten frustrated at what could have been. And when I think about the massive waste of time that was my high school experience compared to what I could have done in terms of academic accomplishment, in terms of business building, in terms of career building, et cetera. Sometimes I get frustrated with that. But in hindsight, I have to look back and say, I'm sure I learned more lessons from that environment than I give credit to. And that's and the reason I wanted to raise that objection, one, it's real, but it's also an important thing that in schooling as a parent, I don't believe the right way to approach things is from an ideological perspective first and foremost. The, as parents, our responsibility is to raise and parent this specific child at this specific point in time. And that may look different as the years go by. And so we should inform ourselves about various ideologies and approaches, etc. We should listen to strong and robust defenders of those ideologies. That's why I try my best to defend as robustly as I'm able to my perspective. But at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to filter those things down and look at this child, this boy, this girl, this young man, this young woman, and then say, what is best for this young man and this young woman at this point in time? And that may be one thing at the age of three. It will be a different thing at the age of eight, and it will be a different thing at the age of 13. And I think that it's perfectly acceptable to go in and out and among these systems as you, the parent, decide is best. Um, the, you, for example, right? I mentioned that I, was, I went to a government school in third grade. Well, the reason I went to a government school in third grade was because my 14-year-old sister died from an epileptic seizure. And de- working their, their way through that in our family, I don't think my parents... My parents decided that, you know what, homeschooling this year is not for us. And so they enrolled us, or they enrolled me, I don't really remember everyone else, but I I think no one was homeschooling during that year. But then after one year of homeschooling, then our family was, was in a stronger place, able to press forward, and and so they... Uh, they started homeschooling again. And along the way, um, sometimes my mom homeschooled me. Sometimes my grandmother homeschooled me. Sometimes the work was good. Sometimes the work was bad. Uh, Sometimes the academic achievement was high. Sometimes the academic achievement was low. Sometimes motivation was a good environment. Sometimes there was less of a good environment. And and when I use that term, I just mean um, in terms of academic structure and friends and and, and such. So as a parent... What I want to emphasize is that it's our responsibility not to be slaves to an ideology, but to be good parents and to study what is is right for this child at this point in time. I defend homeschooling quite robustly because I believe it's a wonderful solution and really brings many opportunities and possibilities that are not available otherwise. The modern industrial factory school system is failing our students on every single metric. There is a very small minority that escape intact and that succeed in that system because of academic skills, academic prowess, internal self-motivation, etc. 
there is a very small minority that is saved by that system, right? You, this is where you get into um, another objection to homeschooling that that some people raise is, well, how do we control for abusive environments, right? You find uh, parental neglect, childhood neglect, child abuse happening, and sometimes homeschooling can conceal that because my child doesn't have to go to a school where the teacher's a, a mandated reporter about the bruises that, that my child has and things like that. And those things are true, but they're statistically unimportant right and and that's more that i don't think we should invent this giant system to um to account for those horrific crimes um but that is a concern that some people have about homeschooling broadly the key thing is that just simply the the modern industrial school system was never developed and built with the primary intention of educating a child effectively and well The modern industrial school system was designed and built with the goal of creating a uniform population that would be easily governed and easily controlled, and by giving that population a certain way of thinking, a certain mindset, a certain worldview. And you feel free to go into down as deep as that rabbit hole as you want, right? John Taylor Gatto's Underground History of American Education is good. Crimes of the Educators is good. Um, you can kind of go down that rabbit, or you can just go to the philosoph—excuse me—the philosophical perspective. Go read John Dewey's writings and and the Progressive School System uh, era in the mid in mid twentieth century. The point is that the, the school system was never developed to help your child succeed to his or her maximal ability. That's why the elites have always had a secondary system. There are great schools out there that are accessed by the elites of our country and every country in the world. It's not your local government school. And so uh, if you are actually looking for a personalized solution to your child's success, which is what we as parents want, then we need to be aware of the opportunities that are available to us and then um, and then go and and seek out the thing that is going to be the best for this child's success. And we should want more and desire more from our schools than them to serve as babysitters so that we can put more people in the workforce, so we can have the income, so we can boost corporate profits. Right? I want my children to be well-educated, and I want to use whatever tools are at my capacity to do it. And as a parent, just like for almost all parents, this is our primary goal. We want our children to go beyond us. And in our current day, especially in a post-information age society, we know that education is core. And the industrial factory school system that can be defeated with our children using chat GPT to write their essays is not a school system that's going to prepare them to function in a world in which chat GPT is taking their jobs. And so I'm more concerned about building the skills so that chat GPT is a tool and not a threat because it's not going away. And the entire industrial factory school system is antiquated and out of touch. About the only thing it does well is give children a, 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 a I can't say safe environment, a, 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 some gives them a supervised environment on a daily basis so mom and dad can go to work. And that just sucks, in my opinion, and we ought to do better. So one-hour podcast on um, on that for you, Ben. Uh, but hopefully that gives you a little bit more to than I bargained about. for there. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, yeah, no, appreciate the time. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good place to, uh, to move on uh, from there. Let's go to 
Bradley in California. Bradley, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Oh, you muted yourself again. Let me unmute you, Bradley. Bradley, are you ready to go? Go ahead. I'm here. Go ahead. So I got a, a sleeping newborn in my arms, so we'll see how many <laughs> questions I get through. Absolutely. Um, but my first question was, you know, a couple of years back, I had subscribed to an email newsletter of yours, and you had 12 book recommendations for 12 months, and I'm trying to put together uh, kind of my reading list for this year. And I was wondering uh, if you had any newer recommendations that you could put out for this year. That's a great question. Uh, and... I would love to answer it. So let me give you, let me just give you a couple or three that I have really enjoyed and benefited from lately. Uh, the book that has probably in, really impacted me significantly this last year uh, is called Stolen Focus. And let me find the subtitle here. Okay, it's called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again by Johan Hari. Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. This book is so good that I, I had planned and I didn't do it yet, but I was going to do a, a standalone kind of summary podcast of it that I just thought it was, it was really, really wonderful. In that book, Hari talks about the problem of our modern inability to focus and then talks about potential solutions to it. And I really appreciated his approach because he didn't limit himself to uh, kind of stereotypical cheap answers, right? We'll turn off notifications on your phone. That's good. And that's useful, but it's much more than that. And it has really, it really opened my eyes to, uh, kind of the immensity of the problem and the, the immensity of the problem. And I, I guess I can't go any farther. It was a really, really good book. A second book that's related to that is I went and I reread in light of that Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. And uh, Deep Work is called, the subtitle is Rules for uh, Focused Success in a Distracted World. And this book is kind of the, the solution to it. But one of the things that I appreciated, let me look and find, I want to find a, a quick quote from it from the beginning of the book while I'm talking. Um, this book basically talks about the usefulness of, of um, the usefulness of, of doing deep work. But here is the hypothesis right from the introduction. And it says this, the deep work hypothesis, the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare at exactly the same time it is becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a consequence, the few who cultivate this skill and then make it the core of their working life will thrive. And I want to reread that. Listen to this. The deep work hypothesis, and let me define deep work. Deep work means that you sit down and you focus single-mindedly on an important uh work task, an important project, et cetera. And you eliminate from yourself distractions and a distractible environment in order that you can spend significant amounts of, of intellectual capital on that project. So again, the deep work hypothesis, the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare. At exactly the same time, it is becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a consequence, the few who cultivate this skill 
and then make it the core of their working life will thrive. And even related to um, education of my long uh, monologue that I just finished, to me, this is actually one of the other big benefits and things that I'm working hard to focus on in our homeschool environment is the importance of staying very focused on a task with no distractions. And I look around and I don't like to be the kind of the old fogey who talks about kids these days. That's a natural generational thing that has, uh, has, has approached, but I do mourn for most of our environment, most of our culture, and I, and mourn for mo- especially most of our youth, the ability that we need and that we have to, to do deep and important work. And I noticed this with myself, which is I'm my own guinea pig. I remember when I was younger, how good I was at staying focused for very long periods of time. And then I remembered um, how that changed. And when that changed, I understood that I saw the change. And so because of that, I was able to, I was able to um, notice how my, my ability to focus was declining. Then when I noticed it, I worked really hard on, on um, getting it back. And I've made significant progress in getting back my ability to focus, which has been really, really useful to me. And then now, thankfully, a friend of mine just sent me this week published January 3rd, um, we're getting some data on this. Let me read you this headline. This is from, uh, reading from the University of North Carolina, unc.edu. The, and the, so the re- one of the research from their news and updates department says, quote, study shows habitual checking of social media may impact young adolescents' brain development. The study provides some of the first findings on how social media usage could have longstanding and important consequences on the development of adolescent brains by the College of Arts and Sciences, Tuesday, January 3, 2023. And I'll just read the first few paragraphs. In one of the first long-term studies on adolescent neural development and technology use, researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill report adolescents' habitual checking of social media is linked with subsequent changes in how their brains respond to the world around them. The study, published today in JAMA Pediatrics, reveals that adolescents' brains may become more sensitive when anticipating social rewards and punishments over time with increased social media usage. Quote, the findings suggest that children who grow up checking social media more often are becoming hypersensitive to feedback from their peers, said Eva Telzer, a professor in UNC Chapel Hill's psychology and neuroscience department and a corresponding author. And so, it you know they go through it and, and we're just starting at the we're at the, the 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 starting point of getting data and good decent studies on on some of the impact of this but i am convinced that cal newport's hypothesis is correct and i see this as kind of a huge danger i mentioned just a few minutes ago chat gpt which is of course taken over the world by storm over the last month and i look at chat gpt and i think it's important not to have the perspective of, of a Luddite, just saying that all new technology is bad. Um, at every stage in human history, when we invented new technologies to, uh, to solve a problem and eliminate human labor, 
there was a major societal fear that, well, this just means people are going to be out of work, right? Going back to everything from an elevator, you know, the bellman operating the elevator to people operating the elevator themselves, to the printing press, to almost anything. Um, at every stage, we go through this, this perspective where we take away jobs, et cetera. But when we come back from it, we use that we wind up using those technologies generally to improve things. And so I'm very optimistic about about new technologies. And while it's probably not quite right to call it AI, the the current use of of AI technology is going to dramatically improve our world in many ways that we can't predict yet. But what it requires is that we upgrade our skills. So the teacher who can be replaced by AI or the student whose work can be replaced by AI has a problem. He has to upgrade his skills. And the most important skill that we have as humans is our creativity and our focus and our ability to, to, to imagine new things. And so that's been a big, a big deal for me, thinking a lot about that. And I want, um, even from an educational perspective, if I were elected emperor of the world, I would spend a lot of time creating environments of focus for children to be in. Uh, now, those environments of focus for children, of course, will be different than for adults. The, you know, when, we, when I want to focus on, do, when I want to encourage focused work, we want to focus on the work, 15 minutes, focus, then be done. And we want to have lots of unstructured playtime of no focus. Uh, the goal is not to take a 10-year-old and put him into an environment where 10 hours a day is doing deep work. But we need to build our muscles in, in that perspective. And that's, uh, that, to me, is really important. So those would be just two that I would uh, suggest off the top of my head. Let me make one more. Uh, actually, which is interesting because uh, uh, you didn't give me any guidelines. I have really been enjoying the book, uh, Making Numbers Count, uh, The Art and Science of Communicating Numbers by Chip Heath and Carla Starr. Uh, Chip Heath is the uh, wrote the book Switch and Made to Stick. And this is a book that uh, a friend of mine told me about it, and I went and picked up a copy. And, it's, and it affirms with good examples kind of what I have often noticed in financial planning is quite simply that the human brain is not well adapted to conceive of numbers. And so the entire book gives um, instructions and tools for basically translating everything into user-friendly numbers, translating things that into context where they make uh, more sense. And uh, this happens in, in, in many areas. Let me give you a couple of interesting examples just from the beginning of it, right? So this is the numeric, uh, this is the numeric, um, expression. 97.5% of the world's water is salinated. Of the 2.5% that's fresh, over 99% is trapped in glaciers and snowfields. In total, only 0.025% of the water on the globe is actually drinkable by humans and animals. So that's, you know, a compelling statistic, but it's hard to remember. So here is the rewrite of it. Imagine a gallon jug filled with water with three ice cubes next to it. All of the water in the jug is salt water. The ice cubes are the only fresh water and humans can only drink the drops that are melting off of each. And so it takes the same numbers, but puts them into a human scale. And they give example after example after example out of it. Out of it. So uh, this is something that I'm studying because I want to do a better job of making numbers make sense. And so uh, I'm trying to learn the lessons and then figure out how to apply them. So much of my work is extemporaneous, and so I, I struggle with that. But I want to do a better job of making numbers uh, count uh, so that they make sense for people. So there are three, three books to consider. Yeah, no, those would be great. I love Cal Newport. Uh, I'm familiar with deep work. 
Uh, but I haven't read Stolen Focus, so I'll definitely check that one out as well. And uh, just since you have interest there, another one to put on your radar might be uh, Indistractable by Near Eyewall, if you haven't checked that one out. And I definitely haven't heard of the, the Making Numbers Count. Uh, so much appreciated. I will challenge you because uh, I have a long year ahead of me. If you enter, uh, have interest in it, to put out a, a full reading list because I got 12 months of reading to fill. Uh, you've done a good job of <laughs> effectively persuading me of uh, the benefits of reading. And actually, I, I should thank you for that because I spent more time reading in the last year or so than I ever have. And you're largely uh, to, to thank for that. And actually, it's funny you mentioned Cal Newport. Uh, because I always think of him when I think of you and your show, because whenever someone's looking for career advice or looking at career change, make a career change, uh, him, his book on so they so good they can't ignore you mm-hmm. and your career and income course are my two most um, popular resources to refer people to in terms of, you know, thinking through those decisions. Yeah. Um, so I, I put you in the same league as him, as him in that regard uh, for advice there. Uh, my second question regarding... Um, kind of just a plan for spending. Every year I create an annual budget and I'm trying to do the same for this year. Um, I've been at a point where I've been saving and investing about 40 to 50% of my pre-tax income. Uh, and I really don't have much interest or see, you know, too much marginal benefit in going beyond that. Um, so instead of focusing on being more frugal this year or investing more, I really want to figure out uh, areas where I can spend more for the most return on uh, my personal happiness, my family's happiness, and, and spending more. Um, it's not a big amount that I have, you know, to add here somewhere around ten to fifteen thousand of uh, disposable income to do that. But I was wondering what broad categories um, should I be looking at? I had a few in my mind, but I'm sure there's things I'm not thinking of because I've kind of been in this um, really frugal mindset of just going at it full throttle for the last four or five years now. Love it. I should probably devote an entire uh, probably a series of podcasts to that uh, because it's such a powerful way to think. Years ago, I did a show on budgeting, and one of the, the points that I made in that budgeting show was the importance of identifying whether certain categories in your budget should increase, stay the same, or decrease. When you look at your budget, spending less money is not the goal. But rather, there should be an additional texture to say which categories of spending would I like to spend more money on, which categories of spending would I like to spend uh, about the same, or in which categories would I like to spend less money on. And a lot of this comes down to personal values, uh, et cetera. So what I would do is let me use my three-question um let me riff off of my three question to give you a framework for this three-question idea. So remember, I've I've done shows on the three questions that are prior to financial planning. Question number one is, um, who do you live with? Question number two is, where do you live? And question number three is, what do you do for work? The idea being that uh, if you live with people that you love and you love who you live with, you can live a happy life regardless of your financial abundance or scarcity. Um, Secondly, if you live in a place that you love and you just really enjoy that, that's going to drive everything about your life experience. And so choosing a place that you love at the macro level, country level, climate level, down to even just the specific house is a big deal. And then number three is uh, what you do for work. And so I think that those are three categories that then would give you the insight into what specific uh, areas of, uh, of, of expenses do you want to focus on? And so like a house, for example, we can go the other way. Well, actually, let me take it in this direction. Um, 
I'll split I'll split the order because it'll make I think the explanation simpler. So on your house, spending money on your house. I think one of the best areas where you can increase your expenses is often on your living environment. Anything that you can do to make your living environment more pleasurable for you based upon your specific um, scenario is a is a good is a good thing. Sometimes this means changing houses. Uh, and so if there's a big structural change that can be accomplished, uh, when I lived, you know, I think it was four tenths of a, two fifths of a mile, less than half a mile from my office, it was what a wonderful structural change to eliminate commuting. I didn't work in the house, but to eliminate commuting was one of the best structural changes to my life. In that particular house, when I, when I was so close to my office, that house, I had a grocery store that was a 10-minute walk away and about a five-minute bike ride. We had a library that was a 10-minute walk and a five-minute bike ride. We had a wonderful park that was a five-minute walk and a, a five-minute bike ride. And so like having all of those amenities and not having to get into a car to drive everywhere is just a major lifestyle improvement. So sometimes changing the location of your house can be a, a smart thing to do. And if it costs you an extra 10 thousand dollars a year in interest payments that might be a great thing to do then in terms of the specifics of your house a lot of times you know you said i I got this frugal house but you know here we are now we 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 need to home we want to homeschool but we don't have a homeschool room well spend fifteen thousand dollars and add a homeschool room to your house uh or spend fifty thousand dollars and add a homeschool room to your house and and just cover it out of your your annual mortgage expenses, things like that, that give you the ability to live the kind of lifestyle that you want, um, will be good investments. And in addition, spending on your house in terms of amenities, so whether it's uh, taking out an interior wall and expanding the dining room so you can have bigger dinner parties, or putting an extra window in so that you can have more light and feel like you uh, are in a better situation, or upgrading the kitchen so it's a useful, functional place to be. These are this is good money spent because your house provides one of the basic bones of of, of your life, and it's really really useful. I personally think that as men, we often discount the importance of this. I did myself when I was younger. And my wife would talk about wanting to do something on the house and I'm like, ah, let's, be, let's be frugal. And then one day I just realized, and her situation is unique, but I woke up and I said, you know what, Joshua, you're being dumb, right? All of my wife's life is either in the house that we live in or out of the house that we live in. So as a mother, um, and a full-time mother and you know a homeschooling mother, et cetera, she's always either in the house or working out from the house. And so her ministry to her children is in the house. She's in the house a lot. Her ministry to others is in the home, right? Opening up the ho- our home, bringing in guests, et cetera. And so money that I spend on our home is in a very, very important expenditure for her. That's different than me, right? Much of my life is outside of the house. I'm probably at home for than most men, but still, when I when I go out for work, I work outside of the house. When I go out for play, I often play outside of the house. When I go out and do you know work in the community, it's generally outside of the house. And so, as a man, it's easy to underestimate the importance of the house and the home for my wife because we have a different we have different roles, we have different functions, and so I think that. 
that spending money on a house is is a wonderful thing to do. And it has the side benefit that in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, it can result in a financial uh, increase when it comes time to sell the house. The second thing that can really be a great spend expenditure of money is on your career, on increasing the pleasure that you gain from your career. I talk a lot about increasing the amount of money that you gain from your career, but I think spending money on your career to increase the pleasure of the career is a really good uh, thing to do. And there are many levels at which you can do that. So first, recognize that most of what we do in life is optional. And if we intentionally, consciously choose to do more of the things that we want to do, more of the things that give us energy, more of the things that invigorate us, and we intentionally choose to do fewer of the things that drain us, the things that we're not well-suited for, the things we don't like doing, the things that make us feel you know, frustrated and angry, etc., we're increasing the quality of our life. And sometimes all that's needed is to spend ten dollars or $15,000 to make that happen. And so it might be you, you um, spending ten dollars or $15,000 dollars to hire a personal assistant. Sometimes it's spending ten or fifteen thousand dollars to upgrade the tools of your life. Sometimes it's spending ten or fifteen thousand dollars on decreasing your salary by going to your boss and saying, "Boss, I don't want to do these things anymore," and swapping it out. Sometimes it's spending ten or fifteen thousand dollars on on uh, uh, you know flying business class instead of economy class or, or whatever the actual application is. The question I ask is, can I spend more money on my career in order to improve the emotional juice and the emotional satisfaction that I get from my career? Because this is easier for an entrepreneur, right? If I'm coaching an entrepreneur, I coach the entrepreneur and I say, the goal is to spend all of your time on things that fascinate you and motivate you, to, to, to steal Dan Sullivan's nomenclature. Um, like fascinate me and motivate me. I want to do those things that fascinate me and motivate me. And then I want to get rid of everything else. But you can do it to a significant degree as an employee as well. And a lot of times if you say, how can I spend the money on that, then it's good. And that's a different spin than what I talk about with increasing income, right? If it's increasing income, certainly spending money on a coach, spending money on an advisor, spending money on those things is really productive. But in your, but could you spend money on increasing the quality of your career. And then finally, I think just broadly speaking, spending money on relationships. I am convinced that perhaps the best way to spend money where you get maximum bang for buck is on people and on relationships. And we know that, right? We talk about that commonly. We say, you know, spend money on experiences, not stuff. But I, I focus specifically on relationships. And I take this from my Christian ideology. Jesus said, um, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that as a financial planner, I spent years thinking about that. And it really, it really, I struggled with it, right? Because there's, there seems to be this intentional, there, there, there is this, this clear conundrum at the very least, you can, whether it's a, or just conflict or conundrum. I don't like to go to, I, I prefer paradox or conundrum or, or like um, seeming disconnect between working as a financial planner, teaching people how to pile up money on earth versus what Jesus said. And some people, many good-hearted Christians, believe that what Jesus was teaching was to be taken in a literal fashion. Uh, there are many Christians who consciously and intentionally choose not to accumulate money because of Jesus' uh, teachings there. 
The hard thing for me was always working in an American context where money flows like water. Um, there's just money around everywhere, just flying through the gutters. And all you got to do is just stoop down and pick some and, and do some work. And you got more money than you can spend if you, if you just follow some basic principles. And so I thought, well, it seems irresponsible not to pile up money. But what brought me a lot of joy and clarity was when I thought about how I would actually lay up treasures in heaven. And sometimes Christians take this in the sense of like winning souls. Um, so they say, lay up, the way that you lay up treasures in heaven is to go and to preach the gospel and to go and, and uh, encourage people to be born again and help to usher them into the kingdom by being born again. And I think that's absolutely true. But I like to look at it just more broadly. If I think about what is in heaven, which is exclusively souls, right? That's what's in heaven. Then to me, if I can spend money on people, then that seems really, really appropriate. And so the way that I lay up treasures on heaven is by spending money on people. And then the specific application of that will come differently in my life and, and in my lifestyle over time. So one application of it, right, is my wife and I are expecting our fifth child. Well, that's they're, they're not cheap, right? They're not as expensive as all the studies say, but they're still not cheap. But I'm laying up treasures in heaven because the one, the one thing I can take with me into heaven is souls, the souls of those I impact and the souls of my children who I can impact more than anybody else. And so I want to have a large family. And if it costs you another ten or $15,000 a year to have a large family or to homeschool or something like that, I think those are good, good categories to, to spend money on. But I think it goes much beyond that. And so some of it would involve charitable giving, right? If I notice that my neighbor is in need and I have the ability to, to give more money to my neighbor to help him in his time of need, then that's something that I should do. And I'll gain a, a great deal of joy out of, out of that. Uh, and then it can go beyond that, though. I think a big thing that we can do is we can create special experiences with other people. And sometimes all that's needed is to have a, a sum of money that we're willing to spend on it. And so if it means, um, you know, setting up a, a dinner date with your 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 friends and you're going out with you and your wife on a double date, and then all of a sudden, the last minute, you swap from the, the frugal spot that's, you know, kind of the normal boring spot, I don't know, Chili's or something, you know, boring place that would have just been a humdrum experience. And all of a sudden you put on a black tie and you go to the fancy steakhouse and you go to a show. Well, those are the memories that are going to pervade in life. And, and a lot of times this has double benefit. Uh, first, people say, well, spend money on memories rather than on um, rather than on possessions, but they don't tell you how to spend money on memories. And the way I think you do this, um, just from my thinking about it, is simply that you spend money on making situations that are out of the normal situations. So if I ask you um, what you had for uh, dinner, you know, last week, uh, Thursday, you're not going to remember. But if I ask you what you ate at, you know, neighbor Ted's barbecue last Saturday, then you can immediately remember it because you have a hook to hang it onto in your thinking. You remember, oh, neighbor Ted's barbecue, he had barbecue ribs and I ate ribs and baked beans and corn. And so you can come up with something because of the differentiation, the distinction from day to day. And this distinction is really, really important to creating a life that you can remember. Distinction doesn't always require money to be spent, but what distinction does require is thoughtfulness into creating something that is different than the normal life. Um, I started thinking about this 
I guess a decade ago when I when I started thinking about holidays. Um, there's this interesting. So I didn't. I've, I've never been a big holiday guy. I didn't celebrate a lot of holidays when I was growing up. And then I I started to have children. And as I started to think about children and what I was going to do, I started thinking about holidays. In the Old Testament, um, God establishes for the people, the children of Israel, He establishes certain holidays, and He says, "Keep these holidays." And if you look at why, he says, so that you will remember. Keep these holidays so that you will remember. And the holidays were all instituted to to memorialize a specific happening, a specific example, right? God's the Passover or um, other events in in their in the Exodus. And so I came to the point that the point of holidays is so that you will remember something. So come to our modern uh, secular holidays, right? Why do we have Memorial Day, right? Well, it's supposed to be so that you will remember. Why do we have Thanksgiving Day? So that you will remember. And so the the distinction of a holiday, the thing that makes a holiday different than a non-holiday is that our activities are different and our, our actions are, are different. So we can design a lifestyle where we can we can either go through life and live a very humdrum existence where day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, there's very little distinction. There's very little uh, there, there's very little there are few things to remember. And then when we look back over the years, we can't see any texture to the past. and that's not very fulfilling. And if you compare that, to building texture into your life, where you go through um, a day and, and you do something special on a certain day, right? It's a Thursday night, but today on Thursday night, we get out the fine china and we light the candles and we all put on our our um, our best suits and ties and we and our fanciest dresses and we sit down for a dinner at Thursday night. That's memorable. Or on Tuesday night, instead of um, coming home to a same old, same old dinner table experience, we light a fire in the backyard and we go and we cook our food on the fire. Um, that's memorable. And all of a sudden you go through life and if, you, if you're intentional about it, we can build these experiences day by day by day, week by week, month by month. And those things are the things that we treasure. And then back to the money, I think that one of the things that we can and should do with money is work to bring people into that kind of lifestyle. That sometimes you can spend money on people and you can craft a beautiful experience. You can craft a, a, a memorable event. You can craft something that they're going to to uh, to appreciate. And that's when they look back on the past year, they're going to, to those events can be significant. They don't always need to cost money. And in fact, I think that some of the most interesting ones are actually the ones that don't cost money. They just cost, cost time and thinking. Uh, in the, the uh, American context where money is so abundant, a lot of times um, what we can do to to make an experience memorable is consciously not spend money. Because we're so used to just spending money, spending money, and if you institute the, the, the constraint of not spending money, you have a much more interesting experience. Um, a short story. Years ago, um, the, one of the most memorable dates that I ever had with my wife was a date in which we spent almost no money. And I, I can't remember why. I was, I was somewhat broke at the time, and I just spent a bunch of money. I didn't have a lot of money. It was actually a Valentine's Day. And I came home from a conference, and it was before we were married. We were going to go on a date. 
And I didn't have any plans for Valentine's Day and I didn't have a lot of money. And so you had the same, the normal humdrum Valentine's Day thing is you go to a nice restaurant and you dress up and you spend hundreds of dollars and blah, blah, blah. But it's the worst night in the world to go out to eat because restaurants are full and everything's overpriced and it's just crowded. And it's no fun at all. So I was thinking, what can I do? What, what, what can I do? And so um, I picked her up and we tossed our bicycles uh, into the car and we went to the grocery store and I said, listen, we got a budget. I can't remember. I think it was $20. And I said, oh, I've got $20. What we're going to do is we're going to build a meal off of $20 and we cannot spend more than that. Here's our $20 bill. We will not spend more than that. And so we went around and we spent 30 minutes wandering around the, the grocery store together, figuring out how to how to uh, put together this memorable, or how to put together a meal with our $20. And we did it. We got out the, went out with a picnic lunch. We took our bicycles down to the beach. We sat on the beach. We had our picnic lunch. And to this day, it is literally the only Valentine's Day date that I can ever remember with my wife. Like I can't, the rest of them, and I'm preaching to myself, I haven't done a good enough job of differentiating them. I need to do that. We've been in baby mode, (laughs) have reasons. But anyway, like that's the one that I can remember. And it wasn't the constraints, the financial constraints didn't make it bad. It actually made it far more fun and far more interesting. And it's the one that I can remember. I can remember how I felt sitting on the beach with her that night. I can remember, oh, I can't remember what we ate. I can remember what we did. I can remember the dress that she was wearing. I can remember everything about that date because it was different and it was unique. And if I go through life, it's a lot of times those those experiences that don't cost money that actually um, that actually make a difference. Now, where does money come in? Well, a lot of times you can invest money into people and give them those those experiences. And so if it's, hey, normally we'd go on vacation, but let's invite that family over there that wouldn't ordinarily be able to afford this kind of vacation to go with us. And let's take them with us. And now you have days to spend visiting with them and engaging with them, et cetera, or 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 et cetera. So I just, I mean, there are more good categories to spend money on, but that's my just off the cuff answer to your question is that your house is a really good area to spend money on. Um, and the good thing, not only for daily pleasure and kind of dollars spent versus time enjoyed, uh, but also for it, it couldn't, it can potentially pay off. Your career is a very good area to spend money on in terms of dollars spent versus pleasure engaged. You're going to spend other than being in your house, you're going to spend most of your time at work doing work. And then the third thing is relationships. Anytime you can spend money on relationships or spend money on other people, I think that's those are good dollars spent. And those are the kinds of dollars you want to increase every year in your budget, not decrease. Oh, I love it. Um, especially, I mean, I have, you know, a growing family. Like I said, I have a newborn. Um, you know, the significant other, she can be off work for six months. She's spending all of her time in the home. So just realizing, you know, that. Um, and just the enjoyment she gets out of, you know, having a nice home. She's very aesthetically minded. I'm not. Um, so pouring more into that, I can definitely see the benefits there. I have family out of state who can't afford to travel here often. You know, I've, I've brought them out a few times and whatnot. And, um, you know, he said, including others who maybe couldn't otherwise afford to be included, who you get a lot of enjoyment out of them being included. Uh, I think that's another really good point. Um, last quick question for you, because you've met, mentioned chat GBT a few times. And uh, I have a brother who's actually become pretty infatuated with potential applications of uh, just chat GPT and other AI technology and has become very interested in trying to invest in the space. Uh, I don't really have any advice for him because that's not the way I invest. And I don't really have any education there. 
Um, do you have any thoughts, though, on how one could best educate themselves if they were interested in doing exactly what he's looking to do? I thought you were going to ask me how someone could invest in the space. My answer was going to be no, I don't have any thoughts. But then you asked me the, the useful question is how someone could do about it, how someone could go about it. Uh, I would, I think the, the primary thing here, there is Twitter. There is no better information flow, information source to connect with the most intelligent, most connected people in the world than Twitter. It is the world's greatest social network. Uh, and it's one of the greatest social networks because of its openness and because of the caliber of people that are there. And so what I would spend my time doing if I were him would be to just simply going on Twitter and following all of the discussion related to chat GPT. The tool that I use to do that is TweetDeck. TweetDeck is owned by Twitter now, but the powerful thing about TweetDeck is that you can, you can set it to automatically search Twitter. And so what I would do is, is focus, I would set up, a, use TweetDeck, and I would set up a column uh, related to every relevant search term, obvious one, chat, GPT, AI, et cetera. Um, then I would study the, the tweet results and find people who are using the tool significantly, and then, um, and then follow them individually as well with their own TweetDeck column. And if you do that, you can pretty well keep yourself at the cutting edge of almost any industry, or at least on the public information of any industry. Uh, it is the best way to do it. And so if you set up a properly cultivated TweetDeck uh, system with about 20 or 30 columns with targeted keywords, keyword combinations, uh, and then all of the relevant companies and people that are that are most involved in that, that's the best way I know of to keep current. And then, of course, Twitter is just a referral service. So it's going to refer him to the articles, the the thinking, the, the threads, et cetera. And you just follow those things along, along and then put in the thinking time uh, in, into it. And then, of course, the other aspect to it is you need to be a thought leader. And so I don't know because I'm not super into it, but if if a dedicated, if, if he's interested in it, then he should have a Twitter profile that is dedicated to AI investing or something like that where he curates all of the content. Uh, on that, because what he the goal is to not only go out and search for the content, but to have it referred to you because you are the curator of timely information and good discussion in that industry. So that's what I would do. Okay, great. Uh, he'll love that answer. And yeah, I I wasn't going to ask you what your specific advice would be because <laughs> I think I, I knew you wouldn't give it. And two, what the value I always get from talking to you and listening to you is thinking about how to think and. Um, just ways on how to learn. And I think, you know, nobody's going to be able to predict what's going to happen. They're perfectly, I mean, we can all make our prognostications, but rather I'd have him just have some useful ways to think about it. And I think that's what you gave me. So appreciate it, Josh. My pleasure. It's an exciting time. It's an exciting technology. It's it's not new. There's been versions of it, but it seems to have captured the public imagination. And that's pretty cool to see kind of where things uh, can go. Daniel in Texas, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, so two questions depending on time, but I'll start first one back to the whole job, job search thing. Um, do you have a recommendation on as we are, of course, we're always looking at the next recession, right? But <laughs> may more likely be going into a recession. But generally, do you have a suggestion on where to start of how to look at how do I look to find a job that is going to be more recession layoff resistant 
as opposed to others. Absolutely. Um, when I was younger, I, I loved the joke that economists have successfully predicted 17 of the last three recessions. And I always thought, ah, what, a, what a funny joke, right? Economists have successfully re- predicted 17 of the last three recessions. And I thought I would be immune from that. <laughs> I look back on my life and I think, hmm, Joshua, you've successfully predicted 17 of the last three recessions. <laughs> and somehow it just seems so much easier to connect with the negative side of life, the negative psychology, the doom and gloom gloom predictions then the happy go lucky positive everything's going to be uh, going to be wonderful so uh let's uh let's be prudent in all affairs but not uh, put excessive stock in our recession predictions <laughs> uh yes i would say there are two things that are really important the first is and there are certainly more than two but there are two that i want to give an answer to you the first kind of job that is not affected by a recession or is if that's too strong of a statement is we could say the first kind of job that is the least affected by a recession is a job that is where you can specifically connect your job work to the revenue created because if you can prove that you are creating revenue that is in excess of what you are costing then your job security is pretty well assured. Now, the classic representation of this is sales. Salesmen do not risk job insecurity in a recession if they can demonstrate that their work is bringing in more money than they're costing. If I can show that I brought in $1 million of revenue and and thus I can justify my $150,000 commission rate, I'm going to have a job because that other $700 or $850,000 of revenue for the company is actually supporting a lot of other people based upon my efforts. So sales-related jobs are, are where you have one job supporting many other jobs. I think there are other expressions of work where you can prove it. So let's say the guy who is producing the widgets, right? If he can say, look, I produced a widget and I added $100 worth of value to this widget and my my cost was $50 for the work that I did, I'm worth it, right? Then, then that guy's got a good case as well. But you want to be able to tie your specific output to people to, you want to you want to tie be able to tie your expense to your employer to the specific output that you are creating so let's use twitter as an example right we're just talking about twitter when elon musk came over came in and took over twitter bought the company etc laid off huge swaths of the workforce and the there were apocalyptic predictions about how quickly Twitter was going to collapse without these huge swaths of the workforce, the engineers, the ESG consultants, the diversity consultants, the you know the the trust and safety team, blah blah blah. Right? He laid off huge swaths of these people. None of those people could prove that their job and their work was making the company more money than they were costing. Otherwise they would not have been gone unless there was a deep ideological you know, problem or, or, or something like that. Uh, and the company seems to be running you know, as well as ever. I, I'm enjoying Twitter more than I ever did. And it's, everything about the experience is just as good, if not better. So 
that's the problem that you face. If you're kind of a mid-level manager and you're responsible for a department, but your department is not bringing in money, uh, it's just spending money. How do you predict that? So anything you can do to specifically show, Hey, listen, boss, yes, I cost you $150,000 a year, but I can point to my million dollars of new contracts that I brought in. You're, you're golden. I think also these positions are really good because unless your entire marketplace changes. Uh, these positions are good because you can you, you, you get accustomed to defending your, your price, and then you can do that in a recession or out of a recession. One of the things that I'm so grateful for learning in the financial services business was that a good salesman can make money in any market. I started selling life insurance in 2008 at the depths of the of the financial crisis. I couldn't tell you how many, you know, mortgage brokers and real estate people and broke real estate investors I sat with and tried to sell insurance. Um, they didn't buy it, generally speaking. But what I learned through that was there were lots of people who needed insurance and it didn't really matter what uh it didn't really matter uh that there was a recession on because there were still plenty of people who weren't being impacted significantly by that recession. My data point that I point to is this. Remember that during the Great Depression, 25% or one in four, let me apply that uh, <laughs> making it stick or making numbers count <laughs> methodology, right? One out of four people was out of work. But what that means is practically Three out of four people still had jobs. Three out of four people still had work, which means yep. that you had a yep. huge population that you could sell to. And so sales is, is kind of puts that into perspective that even in the worst financial depression ever known in the United States, there was massive protection. Okay, so category number one is can you have a job where you can specifically demonstrate that you make your boss more money than you cost him and hopefully a lot more? The second thing that I believe is really important is can I work in a job where we cater to wealthy people? Can I work in a job where we cater to wealthy people and 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 especially in luxury goods in some way? Now, not everything is perfect, but the point is this. If we go through a recession and your local, you know, uh your your accountant who earns $80,000 per year um, has 10% of his client base uh, go to free online alternatives instead of using his tax preparation services. And so his income goes from $80,000 to $72,000, 10% de de decline. That's going to hurt that accountant quite a lot. That's... It's, you know, almost coming up on a, I wish I knew the number off the top of my head. It's like $750 a month of spending, right? 600, $700. It's, it's, it's almost a thousand dollars a month, $8,000 a year of declined revenue out of over 12 months. It's a significant decline in his ability to spend money. And so he's got to go through his budget and he's going to start trimming out, um, call it $600 a month of expenses. And that means that, okay, my maid who was coming, uh, once a week is just not going to come anymore. We're going to cut back our eating out budget by $200. We're going to spend less on vacation, et cetera. But now flip it. And let's say that you're working for you know a local anesthesiologist who's making $800,000 a year. And that anesthesiologist has a decline in his business by 10%. And his decline now means that he's making $720,000 per year. 
that's probably going to have very little impact on his lifestyle. He might choose to forego a new car purchase, but he's not going to lay off his mate. He's not going to fire, you know, he's not going to end his golf club membership. He's going to continue. Now, let's say that you're working for a guy or, or there's a guy who has a has $20 million and he has a 10% decrease in his portfolio values. Well, just not going to make any difference in his day-to-day life. And so the point is that wealthy people are much less affected by recessions than non-wealthy people because they don't have to, they don't have to pull back so much. They have so much more margin in their lifestyle. And so there might be fewer Gulfstream orders in a bad recession. Certainly there might be, you know, fewer Boeing sold or, or fewer kind of luxury goods. But if you're working with and serving the wealthy in general, you're you're not going to be uh, affected significantly in a recession. So if your job involves serving wealthy people, you're well protected in a recession. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Um, as Jack Speaker likes to say, I don't know if you've heard him say this in particular, but like you want to be in the want business, not the need business. Yeah. People will argue for 12 years to negotiate down their cell phone bill by $5, but they won't give up their daily Starbucks. Absolutely. So, um, so how does that, maybe this is too hard to answer, but like, as I'm primarily, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get into the basically at least within two to four years, get into mid hundreds range. Um, sales is not something I really want to pursue. So I'll say that, mm-hmm. um, I think I'm just not great suited for it unless it's something I'm just super into. Um, so it's like, I'm especially looking at larger corporations, obviously for that dollar amount, you're totally looking at middle management kind of style stuff too, because that's where a lot of that money is. Right. Um, so you have a suggestion on how, like, and it feels like as you get more into middle management, it becomes harder and harder to track the dollars associated to your job. Right. Um, do you have a suggestion on kind of how to sort that out or it's just so situation dependent? It is very situation uh, specific because you do have to be very careful to identify. I mean, that, I mean, there's so many different career paths, different kinds of companies, et cetera. Before you dismiss sales though, let me just defend sales for just one moment. Many people have a very limited view of what counts as sales. So many people, their view of sales is selling life insurance, right? Selling life insurance is a great business. I myself could happily sell life insurance for the rest of my life and nothing else today. Like I love life insurance, but there's this, but that's not in any way the only kind of sales. There are sales, there is sales in virtually every business and in virtually every industry. And the way that you approach sales can change dramatically based upon the industry. The guy who sells, you know, Airbus A330s for Airbus is this, is in sales, but the day-to-day function that he has is very, very different than the guy who sells life insurance. Um, there are there are sales uh, jobs that are extremely engineering focused. Then there are sales jobs that don't in any way involve personal contact. So many times people who wouldn't ordinarily be quote unquote a salesman 
really thrive in industries where they don't have to make contact, right? There are people who sell you stuff all day long online that never want to see another human being, never want to go out and shake hands and do your how are you's and who are you's, but they thrive on building complicated landing campaigns or designing um, beautifully performing, you know, email marketing campaigns or ads or constructing sales videos, et cetera. There is no quote unquote type for sales. There is this wrong and flawed impression that some people have that salesmen are extroverts that love to go out and, you know, do their how are you's and who are you's and glad hand all the people. That is a false impression. Sales is a very professional industry, uh, excuse me, a very professional business with incredible diversity in the ways that it can be applied. The key thing that is the same across all sales activities is what I said, that I can prove to you that based upon what I have done and what I have performed, I make you more money. And you can apply that. And that kind of thinking is the best answer to your question. So if I go into a local business, let's say that I develop a skill of improving um, online presence for local businesses, and I become skilled with, with doing that. If I can go into a local business and I can say, listen, I'll improve your, your revenue or increase your, your number of bookings by this number of customers or something like that, uh, I can prove that I've got those, that, that, those results. And when I go into the same, into a business offering that, and I start going up the levels, I lose that ability. So I don't think, I guess I just wanted to defend sales for a moment because there is a false impression that people have that it's all kind of what we, what we stereotype as the used car salesman. That stereotype, by the way, is also significantly broken, but there was like this 1980s, you know, Hey, you want to buy a car today? And do you want the purple one or the red one? And that the wet world is dead and gone. Sales can be any expression. And many times introverts engineers, people who even don't even love being with people are often the best sales people because they're the best sales engineers and they understand people. Um, last example, I have always loved Dan, uh, left my, the, this, the sales guy wrote, um, um, uh, re rewrote, uh, psycho cybernetics. Uh, anyway, Dan, It'll, it'll come to me in a moment, but now this is going to bother me. It's not going to come to me in a moment. Uh, he republished psycho cybernetics and anyway, the sales guru himself, Dan, whatever his last name is, the hundreds of hours of his audio. And he was very famous. He sold billions of dollars of stuff. But one of the things that's so interesting about him is he was a copywriter and a salesman, incredible salesman. And he literally, to the end of his career, he's at the end of his career, he sold his business to, um, to what's his name out in, uh, in, in Boise, uh, to Russell, uh, Russell Brunson. But he, literally to the end of his career, he's only contactable by fax machine. That he sits in his home office surrounded by dozens and dozens of clocks reminding him of the shortness of time. And he has run his entire business exclusively through a uh, fax machine. And he doesn't interact with individuals 
really almost ever. He spends his time thinking and, and mostly in isolation. Now, on occasion, he will go and he will um, give a presentation, he'll work with somebody, etc. But he's one of the world's all-time greatest salesmen, sold billions of dollars of stuff, and he never interacts with individuals. So he's my, if I could come up with his name, um, he would be, he's my go-to example of showing you how effective you can be as a salesman, even if you literally don't like people, but you understand people and you can sit back and you can, you can coordinate and organize. Beyond that, I would say, don't worry too much about a recession. Recessions come and go. Focus on the long-term plan. Deal with the recession if it comes. But sometimes they come. Two weeks later, they're gone. Yeah. Um, one more question. Sure, go ahead. I've done these hour-long answers, okay. so go ahead. <laughs> there you go. I wanted to say, I meant to say it at the beginning, but I forgot. Uh, for the first caller, I think his name was Cody. If he's still listening. Or, and I already posted on the Facebook group. But um, I have actually a lot of experience in a lot of that world with water features and landscaping and edible stuff. So if he wants to chat, I think I've got some great resources to him. He should reach out to me through Facebook and we can connect. So I think I can help him somewhat in that. Beautiful. But, um, so that second question being, and I guess the answer is probably relationships, but like, you know, there's a lot of people who are largely successful. Most of my jobs I've gotten have been through relationships. At this point, I don't necessarily have any more relationships or especially looking at large corporations. It's like, I know people at Boeing. I know some people at Halliburton, some of these big companies where there's lots of money, et cetera. But they're all like, well, apply for the job. I might be able to give you some thought of what it is. I feel like I'm kind of at the end of how to build relationships to potentially connect you to other jobs. Do you have a suggestion on how to build more of those relationships um, or where for especially some of the higher paying jobs, those connections are, do they just, do those not exist for larger companies or yeah. Do you know the, the industry and the company and the job description that you would like to have? Uh, I know somewhat the job description beyond that. I'm, really open to whatever works. The problem is not that you've run out of people. The problem is sure. you have not been able to clarify for yourself the specific industry, the specific company, and possibly the specific job that you want. Relations, you can build relationships. The world revolves around relationships but you can't build them sure. randomly, right? The random ones are the ones that are available to you now. The intentional ones yep. are the ones that you go after. So if you want to build a relationship, you have to know what am I trying to build a relationship around? If we want to meet the top 10 um, people involved in programming chat GPT, like the previous caller, you can do that. And six months from now, you can know all 10 of them. But you have to have an organizing principle that these are the 10 people that I, that, that I, that I want to know. If you want to know 10 people at Halliburton, you could do that. But knowing 10 random people at Halliburton isn't going to help you very much. And so you have to have some basic idea of a job that you want in an industry and ideally at a company so that you can then target your relationship building. And so you can figure out who you're going to reach. Uh, that's once you have that, then you can make your list of who are the 10 people that are most 
you know, connected to this or who are the 10 people that are likely to have the resources that I need in this. You, you can't just do it randomly. You have to know what you're going after, or at least have some basic idea. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I just have to figure out that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A man who says, I want a job, is going to have a hard time finding it because he can't know where to start looking other than just a random help wanted job. But the man who says, I want a job working in a mortgage company as a mortgage loan uh, you know, officer but not selling, that man now pulls out the phone book, finds a certain number of mortgage companies, starts meeting people, and you know, a month later, he'll have the job. So you got to have some idea of where to start your search based upon what you want, then you can start making the contacts that you need. So that would be my recommendation. All right, move to Mark in Georgia. Mark, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Mark in Georgia, are you there? Going once for Mark. Once for Mark. Going twice. We'll go. Mark, we'll come back to you in a minute. We'll go to Trey in Texas. Trey, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Oh, man, Joshua, this has been a long one, hasn't it? <laughs> My bladder is telling me to answer your question quickly. <laughs> it's been good, man. I'll tell you what, man, I had three questions, but one of them is probably better for my attorney anyway, and I'm going to be talking to him next week. So I'm going to give you two and feel free to do rapid fire if you want to. Um, the first one, you mentioned uh, loving motorcycles on your recent goal setting podcast, mm -hmm. and I also love motorcycles. And, uh, currently have an Indian and a Harley. And of course it's, it's, it's a fairly risky lifestyle. Um, I just wanted to ask, how do you balance your love of motorcycles with your fatherly responsibility to stay alive? Good question. Um, when I first started riding motorcycles, I thought it through, um, very carefully and I discovered a couple of statistics that made a big difference. So I, I, can't rem I can't cite the original factors today, so I'm just going to use directional numbers, and you can look up the, the original, um, the, original uh, the, the actual numbers. But I heard something like 50% of motorcycle accidents involve alcohol, you know, something like that, a high percentage. Yep. And mm -hmm. alcohol is extremely dangerous to a motorcycle rider, even in amounts that are not over the legal limit, because just mm -hmm. a tiny bit of alcohol can cause a uh, can cause slight variations in 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 response times, et cetera, which can be the difference between life and death. So I made a promise to myself, number one, I'm going to cut out 50% of ac accidents by never consuming a drop of alcohol when I'm riding. And I never had a single drink, um, not a single drink ever when I'm riding a motorcycle. Number two, <clears throat> a huge percentage of motorcycle accidents are driven by um, riders who outride their ability. So one of the great problems of motorcycle statistics have to do with the sample set, right? Is it, is it you know, the, the most recent death, was it, you know, Joe Blow out on a Saturday morning ride down to see his buddy at his buddy's house on his Harley, or was it the guy in his Hayabusa going 190 miles an hour down the interstate, right? Which, which was it? Well, they're all included in motorcycle deaths. But a lot of motorcycle accidents involve the rider outriding his ability, right? Takes the curve too hard, flips over the top side, and is dead down on the cliff below. So I promised myself I would never be an aggressive rider, and I would never outride my ability. Makes me not super fun, but that was the promise I made, is that I'm never going to outride my ability. 
The third, yeah. um, the third thing that I chose was uh, focused on rider skill. Very many riders, especially kind of the weekend warrior riders, don't ever practice the skill of motorcycle riding. They don't actually practice the actual skills. Now, here's where I think a lot of times the sport bike guys do better, but they're riding so fast that it's pretty dangerous a lot of times. But the, the weekend guy doesn't actually practice the skills. And so I would go out and uh, practice all my slow speed stuff, slow speed maneuvering. I bought all of the Ride Like a Pro info products. It was Back then it was the DVDs and I watched them all and I would go out on the weekends and I would practice in the parking lot, practice everything until I could come up and I could do a U-turn in a tiny space without you know putting my feet down. I practiced emergency stopping. I practiced all the skills. Um, and then related to that, one of the big skills is proactive riding. So the, you can't, as a motorcyclist, you can't control other drivers, but you can be prepared for them. So little things like covering the brakes, whenever you're coming, whenever there's an opportunity where someone could pull out in front of you that you've already got the brakes covered that, that microsecond to where you, where you have the brakes covered because you're watching for someone to pull out in front of you from the left-hand side or whatever it is, that microsecond is a big deal. And so practicing those things and constantly thinking, where is the, where is the danger? Then I tried to focus on riding in safer environments. And so the most risky uh, places to ride are strodes in the United States, right? These mixed lane um, things where you got people crossing all over the time. Um, I hate those. And so riding on the interstate for a motorcyclist, very low risk. Riding on you know a back two, two lane road, relatively low risk. Riding on four, six lane strodes through, the, through town is a death sentence in many cases. And then also I, I committed to wearing all the gear all the time. So, um, all the gear all the time to try to be protected. So today, you know, even including airbags, right. Um, having a, and doing it and people don't do it cause they don't like the, the, the heat or they don't like the cool, et cetera, but that gear saves lives. So having a high quality helmet, having high quality riding jacket and stuff that saves lives. And there are plenty of options available that give you kind of the riding environment. That said, I pretty much have given up motorcycle riding these days um, because whenever I'm out there, it's not that I'm worried about the safety, but primarily it's that I think about um, what I could be doing instead. And so um, being out being out on a motorcycle is going to limit you to one or maximum two people. Whereas, you know, right. If you've got a bunch of children, what are you going to do? And, and I can, I just can't justify that stuff. I don't need to have a hobby that takes me away from home every Saturday for five hours. I, I, my hobby is my children. And so I want to do something that's going to be with them. And so it just doesn't fit into my life. Now, when I'm older, maybe will it change? Sure. You know, I always loved one of my favorite stories was the, I think it was the Underwoods, the Horizons unlimited who this uh, australian couple who took their harley davidson to every country in the world like that's awesome but um um but that's not at this stage of my life so i just don't i don't bother anymore i don't ride much there you go yeah okay well it's funny because i mean you're very logical that's exactly the the thought process i did as well i, I looked up the stats and was like oh, okay well don't don't drink and ride you know wear the gear i don't do i don't don't do so great wearing the gear all the time i should probably get one of those airbag vests but you know, wear my helmet and that kind of thing. And I, I typically will just kind of build it into travel that I have to do already anyway, rather than travel for leisure. So it doesn't really take much time. So cool, man. Thanks for, thanks for clearing that up for me. It kind of confirms the way I was feeling about it. I don't want to, you know, give up my life because I also, I want to set an example for right. 
my kids, you know, that, Hey, you can still have fun when you're an adult. (laughs) You should have hobbies. Right. Um, so the last one is going to be really quick. I noticed some, uh, recent advertisements on your podcast and I wondered, uh, how can someone advertise on your podcast? The recent ad. So over the years, uh, over the, (laughs) over the years, I've had a complicated relationship with podcast advertising. When I started the podcast, I had spent so many years in a deeply conflicted industry with lots of conflicts of interest and potential conflicts of interest that Mm -hmm. I just didn't want any of that. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to give everything away and I'll do like a listener support model. Well, the listener support model was, you know, was okay, but the income was a fraction of what it could be. Basically, tiny, I had to go back and look at the numbers, but it was a tiny, tiny fraction of the audience engaged in a listener support model. But I, I stuck to my guns and I'm like, no, I want the purity of this. And so then I started selling, then I started selling um, courses and the courses have been my most profitable endeavor. I do some, 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 uh, some, uh, consulting here and there, but the course sales are my highly profitable endeavor that I really like. Um, mm-hmm. And so I basically say, well, I'll do the podcast for free and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sell the courses. But along the way, you know, I'm coming up pretty soon on episode 1000 of the podcast uh, should be here uh, this next year. And when I started off to do the show, I said, I'll do a thousand episodes and then I'll decide. Well, doing the podcast, I, I enjoy doing the podcast, but I don't enjoy doing the podcast for free. I enjoy doing the podcast as advertising for the courses, but I don't enjoy doing the podcast for free. So I thought, well, how can I make it so that I want to do the podcast? Um, that sounded really selfish. Like I, I'm really grateful to do the podcast, but it is also something that I don't... Anyway, so I thought, how can I make myself want to do the podcast? Um, well, I can make it. I can make myself want to do the podcast if I actually earn money directly from the podcast. So years ago, mm-hmm. I used to take some kind of, I, I used to take some sponsorships, and I would sell ad packages and do those ads. And I wanted. I started with like the very altruistic, noble, like I'm going to be the guy who personally, uh, personally. Uh, endorses these advertisers and I would go through and I'd do all this research and all this thinking. Then I would give them my voice and I would, you know, play the ad. The problem with that is number one, it's hard to do enough due diligence over your advertisers so that, you know, let's say that, let's say that FTX came to me a year ago and says, Joshua, we want to sponsor your podcast. Well, would I have said yes to them or would I have said no to them? I don't know, right? I, I probably would have said yes if I if I were selling ad spaces, because I didn't have any unique insight into the fact that it was a giant Ponzi scheme. I just, you know, I'm not that connected to the industry, and and so like that whole concept of personal endorsement is a very excruciating thing for me. So the problem is that. Um, in podcast advertising, there's something called dynamic ad insertion, and there's been um, over the years that that's been available from several providers, but I never pursued it because I didn't really want to do advertising for other people's stuff. I primarily like to just advertise my own stuff and I like to make my money from my own courses, my own products that, cause those I can endorse. I know they're high quality and I'm happy with them and the money's really good. Um, so anyway, but I said, well, let me try it. So then my podcast host, which is Libsyn, 
came out and they created their own what's called dynamic ad insertion uh, where they automatically put ads on the show. And my audience size is quite large in the podcast space. And it means that the, the ads that can be bought uh, get a pretty good rate. And so the actual cost of them makes it worth my showing up and doing a podcast. Uh, because if there's three or four ads that play on the show, then they do it. And by doing it that, and by doing using the dynamic ad insertion system, I actually have no control over the ads that are played. Uh, and I'm not choosing them and they're not in my voice. So that helps me to feel good. It's just like the radio, right? Where they play something in between what you say. I'm responsible for what I say. I don't, I'm not responsible for what other people say. Um, and so I, uh, I, um, anyway, that, that's what it is. It's the, it's, it's a company that Libsyn interacts with and they, they buy ad spots. So how can you buy a, an ad on my show? Short answer is you can't. Um, I can't guarantee you that anything will be on my show because I don't control the ad flow or the the ad inventory. You could go and figure out who that company is and buy it by advertising from them, but that advertising would not appear just on my show. It would appear on other people's shows. Now, that may change in the future. So that dynamic ad insertion is a little bit annoying because I don't have control over the ads. I have some control. I can control like to some degree what gets advertised, but uh, some of that stuff is pretty, like, even if I exercise the category selection, I don't get the finite category selection. So I may move to a different provider, or I may just go ahead and go back to doing my own thing and setting up my own system where I did actually sell ad rates from for people who were allied with my show. There was a show recently where Somebody pub- they, they published an ad for HIV testing and they published an ad for a transgender um, lifestyle podcast on my show. And uh, one of my listeners wrote to me and said, Joshua, FYI, like these are the ads that are playing on, my, on your show. They're probably not a great fit for your brand. And it's like, yeah, they're not. I don't want to be served, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be served with ads yeah. for HIV testing. Uh, that's just, I don't even want to think about it. It's not what I want showing up in my financial podcast. And I don't want a, a transgender lifestyle promotion, you know, podcast advertised. So they're still working out some kinks and I'm patient and we're working on it and we'll see. I haven't decided that, but at the moment I'm not accepting personalized advertising. Um, maybe that can happen in the future. Maybe not. Um, we'll see, but at the moment, the best thing you can do is plug your thing. So plug your thing. You got 30 seconds. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, I appreciate that. It's actually a, uh, HIV testing for LGBT. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Very much in favor of the Radical Personal Finance audience. You're going to be overwhelmed with business. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll do it real quick. So it's it's a, a budgeting and financial forecasting um, software for companies to use in their financial planning. So really just like forecasting income statements primarily. Wonderful. Well, do you have a website? Uh, yeah, well, actually, no. We, we just bought a domain and we've been building it locally, but it's called Bridge First. Bridge first. And, yes, sir. One word. Bridge, bridge first. first because it's based on a bridge. Yeah. Like, yep. Uh, yes, that's right. And you can get a hold of me in the meantime at Trey, T-R-E-Y, at MaloneConsultingFirm.com. Wonderful. So if anybody's looking for budgeting and cash flow forecasting software for companies, you can contact my loyal listener, Trey, at MaloneConsulting.com or potentially in the future, go to BridgeFirst.com. Fair enough? 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Best ad deal you're ever going to get on Radical Personal Finance. I promise you that. All right, Mark and Georgia, are you there this time? Yes, Joshua, I am. Uh, I just tuned in to listen. You just Sorry, tuned in I to just listen. Tuned in to listen. All right. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> good news for you, right? But hey, great, great answer on the uh, motorcycle perspective. Uh, I'm a motorcyclist too, and uh, that that was uh, that was a very good answer. Every point. I think you can reduce the risk enough to make it acceptable. Um, and I don't think that living risk-free is life's goal, right? It's always just a matter of what's an acceptable level of risk. And so to me, when I look, like driving a car is risky, very risky. It's not as risky as riding a motorcycle, but it is very risky. And yet we still drive cars. There are many things that we do that are, that are risky. And so for someone, I, I don't know that life is a computer program. I know for me, when I went through those risk reduction exercises, I felt like that adjusted the numerical risk significantly enough to where I would be content with it. And I would encourage when, when there is something you can do to reduce risk, it's silly. That doesn't harm anything. It's silly not to do it, right? It's fun to take your motorcycle out and practice slow speed maneuvering in a parking lot. It's fun to go out and do emergency braking. Uh, it's fun to to swap in your your old antiquated motorcycle for a you know a, a, a modern motorcycle with ABS. Um, I was borrowing a friend's motorcycle um, recently. It was some time back, and uh, we had gone to an event together, and he had ridden there, and I'd driven. I had driven. I was like, listen, swap swap me out. So I was riding his motorcycle back, and I was riding through the mountains and blew out a tire. Um, blew out a tire going around a curve, and I wobbled off the road. And I was thankful at that moment for all of the training and all of the practice. Um, but every time, every time I I ride an older motorcycle, and I uh, and I lock up the wheels and have to recover, I just think to myself, Joshua, why are you riding a motorcycle without ABS? Right? There's just no reason for it. So all those risk reduction things, I think, bring it into an acceptable zone as long as you're not riding around on street, city streets all the time. And at the end of the day. Living a risk-free life is not the goal. Um, the goal is to to do the things that you want, to live the way that you want, et cetera. And, and my biggest reason is just simply, I agree with the previous caller about, about that it's fine, you know, it's fine to have hobbies, but my biggest um, thing is, is just simply, it just seems like not something that I, that I love to do, right? My wife is with the children all during the week, a lot of times when I'm working. And so the idea of my getting on a motorcycle and going out on a four or five hour ride is just distasteful to me. So 20 years, I'll probably be in a different situation, but I'll be riding an ABS motorcycle. That's for sure. <laughs> all right, Mark. Well, thanks for calling in next time. Just uh, wait for the, re- for the recording. Cause I promise you, uh, it is exactly, uh, it's just published, uh, very soon after, after the show. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, any closing announcements? I've got a new course coming out. Uh, Gabriel Custodia and I are launching a new course that should be out um, with information on that this next week. We're excited about that. I've got a bunch of new things that I'm working on. It's going to be a great new year, and I'm very excited uh, about sharing it with you. Thank you for being here. I, I don't say thank you enough, but I do want to just say as, as I close today's show, thank you. Uh, for you to be here listening to me is an honor and I will continue to do everything I can to make it a good and valuable use of your time. Happy new year. And I'll be back with you very soon.